Hello and welcome to another classic album series podcast from us, the lads at Riot Act. I'm Stephen Hill. He's Renfrey Deadman. We are the we are the lads at Riot Act, aren't we? Apparently so. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's a fact. Oh, well, it's getting. not untrue. I don't know, lads. Yeah, sure. I'll go with it. Lads, lads, lads. Because we're lads. the most blokiest band that we've ever spoken about. Before, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say yeah. it doesn't really feel like the most appropriate. Doesn't. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, introduction, uh, but fine. That's fine. I'm happy no, to be a lad. Thank, How are you? Thank you very much for listening and downloading this podcast. This is the first part of a two-part podcast that we're doing. If you want to hear the whole story behind this particular uh, band that we're going to be talking about, then please. Please head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash right act podcast, and you can sign up for this, what we do every month. We do uh, a five pound tier, which gives you two of these classic albums or, well, it's, it's kind of working out about four at the moment, really, isn't it? Renfrey? At the, at the um, moment, yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and you also get a Rioters review a week, which means you can suggest an album and we will chat about it. Um, but you can choose that. These are the ones that you... You can't choose. This is down to me and Renfrey's choice. And it's Absolutely. my my pick, my pick this week. Um, we're actually going back to a band and an album that we've already featured on the weekly show back in the early days of Trade Off when we used to do Trade Off, if you remember the feature I'm referring to. It's Depeche Mode. Um, in the second part, we're going to be going in for the very first time on their 1990 Super Smash hit record, Violator. But on this part, once again... We go back to 1987 to take a proper look at the band's sixth album, Music for the Masses. Um, I'm so pleased you said that because um, we had a little discussion. There was quite a bit of back and forth on this to begin with, wasn't there? Because we were like, oh, God, can we go in on in any detail on something that we've technically already covered before mm. um i think we've made the right i mean listening to the two records i don't want to give too much away on my thoughts on it yet but i definitely think we've made the right decision uh well, collectively yeah i mean i actually we'll probably go into this more as we go through it but there was a lot of debate about the particular things that we were or weren't or could or potentially might have talked about with Depeche Mode um, because they are a massive band. 100 million albums sold worldwide, four, over 14 albums, 50 hit singles in the UK singles chart over the years, 50 UK top 40 singles. Okay. That so, is mad. So there's another thing. So I, I have just done a very non-auditory um, uh, open gate face because I couldn't uh, open mouth jaw on the floor face because I didn't know that. And I suppose mm. that's the other thing that we should say before going into this podcast. Sort of similar to the Pink Floyd one that we did. God, it was the third one we did, wasn't it? The wall or fourth or something yep. like that. Um, this is an interesting one from the point of view that Steve is very much guiding me by the hand on this one because my Depeche Mode knowledge, I mean, if you thought that my Pink Floyd knowledge was fucking atrocious, and it was, and it still, yeah, it is, was. To a, it still is to a degree, mm. I know next to nothing about Depeche Mode, Steve. I know, I know far less about Depeche Mode than I know about Pink Floyd. We've decided that we'll, you know, all I have done is uh, I've been instructed to listen to Music for the Masses Violator and um, there's a documentary film called 101 as well and I've watched that as well. Uh, so, But beyond that, it's just my opinion on those things and uh, covering these records that we're covering. But you are going to be teaching me. You are going to be mm. educating me. And, and there's going to be, I mean, just you saying 50 hit singles that I'm like, what? Because the yeah. Bash Mode are just one of those just just one of those areas just one of those blocks that i just don't i just don't i just have never gone in 
on Depeche Mode mm. properly uh, until until now. So this is going to be a super big education for me. Well, you've you've sort of um, you've sort of uh, preempted what my first sort of line of questioning was going to be. Okay. So Depeche Mode as a band cited as an influence from. Marilyn Manson to Nine Inch Nails to Deftones to No Doubt to The Killers to Aha to Muse to The Pet Shop Boys to Tegan and Sarah to Churches to A Perfect Circle to Arcade Fire and beyond, right? A very, very influential band Undeniably. in many, many different spheres. And But when I speak about Manson, Nine Inch Nails, Deftones, Fear Factory, bands like that who have cited Depeche Mode as an influence... You would think that, um, you know that the the because they've influenced so many rock bands, you would imagine that a lot of people who are have a background in rock and metal are familiar with Depeche Mode, and I think there tends to be a camp of people who are aware of that and love Depeche Mode, or a bunch of people who just look at them and go, "Well, they're not really part of this thing," so mm-hmm. I've just never gone in for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I was quite interested before we get started. I mean, I should say, so Music for the Masses released on the 27th of September, 1987. We did talk about it. Um, it was one of our first ever trade-offs. I think it was about third or fourth week in. So, you know, you're looking at just over two years ago uh, that we did a trade-off, um, which would have been, I reckon, pretty much um, the first time you were faced with an album of this genre from this vintage as well, Renfrey, the kind of 80s, production that put you off so much at the time um i'm pretty i'm pretty sure that's true i'm pretty sure this is the first thing you gave me in that sphere yes yeah 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 um two years later what do you remember about that experience and how much do you think that you as a person and as a listener have changed since those days and with that in mind how much better equipped are you now to go in kind of um with a critical ear to depeche mode do you feel I remember being really pleasantly surprised by how much I liked the record. Don't want to mm-hmm. spoil it too much, but I like it even more now. Um, uh, music for the masses, I'm speaking about specifically. Yep. Um, I, uh, I feel like there is always going to be a bit of a block with what I am really broadly, generally going to term... 80s synthesized music and the reason for that is purely down to the uh music snob in me um which is i just don't like the sound of 80s synthesized keyboard because to me it sounds very very cheap now obviously at the time the synthesizers and so on and so forth that these bands were using were anything but cheap. They were really fucking expensive. Um, But that technology has progressed and moved on so much that if you didn't grow up with that sort of thing, I can understand why would, well, I can understand, I can empathize with why would there would be a big block for getting into that sort of uh, synthesized 80s sound. I have... um, I have thawed on that feeling since we've been doing this podcast for a number of reasons, um, a lot of which is to do with your influence and throwing these things at me. It's partly that. It's also getting into bands like the Black Queen, for example, um, discovering a little bit more about this synthwave movement. I think it's really 
interesting going back to bands like Depeche Mode at the moment, though, because you do see how a little bit like Stranger Things, for example, the way that Stranger Things, it, if, if you really analyse Stranger Things, it isn't actually copying the 80s as much as you think it is. It's copying rose-tinted memories of the 80s. Mm. And it's really interesting when you when you you know I don't want to go in all critic all guns blazing to be, to start with because um, I actually you know spoiler alert I really fucking like this record a lot um, but I am trying to explain what my difficulty in listening to these bands has been in the past and I think if you um, I a bead this with uh, Black Queen record the Fever Daydream record which I fucking yeah. love which we both great, fucking great love. record. And it's really interesting because whilst you can hear all those 80s influences and so on and so forth, they have very much eradicated the ones which sound cheap In to my... I mean, I, I, I don't... I personally think... I've been using this word objectively quite a lot more. I do personally think that objectively they sound cheap, some of the, some of the older stuff. Whereas the newer stuff is very good at kind of um, putting that stuff aside a little bit and... and bringing in that sort of synthesized rose tinted uh nostalgia in a way which sounds which still sounds fresh today i suppose and stranger things does that as well um i think all of this kind of retro 80s nostalgia thing that we're very much going through we're sort of roughly getting to the end of it now it feels like we're going into a retro 90s nostalgia thing at the moment it does yeah yeah yeah, 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 at yeah. Last. yeah last. <laughs> we've been gunning for it um but um yeah i think that has been a block However, I have to admit, I've been, you know, listening to these records um, pretty much every day, certainly every other day, I would say, for the last fortnight or so. And I'm certainly getting to the point with them now where I'm having to just hold my hands up and go, well, whilst they may well have been on recorded on things that I find a little bit cheap and difficult to listen to, and I'm purely talking about the instrumentation here, uh, songwriting wise they are just fantastic songs and it's really mm. you know i'm i'm now kind of appreciating that so much more than i would have been able to 2 years ago really 5 years ago i mean my journey with this stuff did did begin just prior to riot act and i think you just i think i was teetering over the cliff and i think you just sort of pushed me um mm. but um i was tiptoeing into it just just prior to riot act and and now i can appreciate the stuff way 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 more i don't think i'm ever going to love the sound of some songs we'll go into it later but um, yeah sure but yeah that's that's did that answer your question it was very long absolutely yeah, yeah. yeah no no i'm glad you answered it with the uh the gravitas it deserved to be <laughs> honest you. mate and the you know with the the, the full you went full in two I'm footed. trying that's I'm good trying. yeah um for me depeche mode are um absolute innovators in many many ways which we will go into um uh, and and I think they have got a reputation or they certainly had a reputation around the time that we're going to be talking about in this country, which I feel is incredibly unfair. I mm. don't think they have that reputation in other parts of the world, but I think the reputation they had in the UK for a very, very long time was one born of pure gatekeepering music industry snobbery mm. and one of um, just a kind of an unwillingness to embrace new ideas okay um but this is, anyway this is really interesting i don't know any of this so i'm very the, interested to get into this well and, and i think there probably will be a few few people probably who um you know 
who come to us for Lamb of God and Sepulchre and stuff who may go, Depeche Mode, you know, really, is that what you're covering? Well, you know, um, let me give you the context of Depeche Mode because obviously we're starting here on their sixth record yeah. um, and they've been a band for a while. So I think it's definitely worth putting the band in context mm-hmm. um, just so we can see how they got to this point and the sort of journey that um, had led them to music for the masses. Mm-hmm. Um, they were formed in 1980 by the trio Vince Clark, Martin Gore and Andy Fletcher. Um, they originally were called Composition of Sound. Um started more as a folk band Depeche Mode as a matter of fact yes Martin Gore (laughs) has spoken a lot about um finding a box of old 45s uh you know old old kind of seven inch singles um at his mum's house all kind of old rock and roll standards and that being the inspiration for him wanting to play music he's essentially Mm. a guitarist Martin Gore the sort of primary songwriter of the band as we get later on he does do a interesting cover of i saw her standing there on the 101 film which we're going to he does yeah 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 um uh but the band were in the very very early days more led by vince clark um vince clark heard orchestral maneuvers in the dark um and decided they, the kind of acoustic folk that the band were doing should be ditched and they wanted to go in the, into a more synthetic um, sort of electronic-led direction. Uh, they then saw a school friend by the name of Dave Garn um, singing the song Heroes by David Bowie in a local Scout Hut jam session. I can imagine and, that. I can imagine yeah, that, yeah. And decided uh, that rather kind of originally Clark was the vocalist. He didn't feel he was strong enough as a vocalist. So they enlisted Garn as their vocalist, who was much more of a kind of traditional rock singer. He was more inspired by Brian Ferry, um, by David Bowie, by glam rock. Um, So that's Clark and Gore and Garn. Andy Fletcher, the fourth member of the band, was a huge Deep Purple fan, a metalhead. I mean, he doesn't write the songs. You can probably tell that he's got pretty much nothing to do with with uh, with having anything to do with the the sort of direction Depeche Mode went in. But you know, we'll, we'll talk about Martin Fletcher as we go on. Mm-hmm. Um, they're named after the French fashion magazine Depeche Mode, which means fashion update. Although Martin Gore has said that the band themselves are under the impression that the term meant fashion dispatch. Um, one of the main inspirations for that time, and I want to mention this song because I think it's. Um, you know, we will talk about uh, electronic music and we've spoken before. I mean, we did with you too. We spoke about Kraftwerk a little bit and um, Kraftwerk being kind of year zero for this kind of stuff. But Kraftwerk are not really, for my money, although they're kind of born from the same thing, I'm not sure how big, although Kraftwerk had, obviously had would have, would have had a huge influence on everybody who does electronic music. Um one of the big inspirations for where I think you can, you can hear Depeche Mode and their progression is the 1978 song Warm Leatherette by The Normal. Have you ever heard that song before? I should have told you to listen to it. No, no, it was out I'm on sorry. Mute, no. Mute Records. Okay. Um, it's a really good song. Uh-huh. Um, it's pretty scary as well. I mean, because of it, it today, it sounds incredibly rudimentary, but the mechanical nature of it i and and the subject matter which is the novel crash by jg ballard which okay. was turned to a film by mm-hmm. david cronenberg in 1996 which i have seen yeah you've seen that very film. very very controversial film yeah it's been Just a long a time since i've seen it yeah, yeah. yeah um but a very influential song it actually influenced omd orchestral maneuvers in the dark who uh-huh. in turn influenced depeche mode so that kind of knock on I think you can kind of see that as a really big inspiration for for that. You can kind of trace it back to that song and particularly um, 
down to the because of the very very dark nature of that song um i personally think from kind of synth pop to going into a much darker uh more sinister direction is kind of a blueprint for the progression of where Depeche Mode go. So if you get a chance, if you're interested, do listen to the song Warm Leatherette by The Normal, which um, was actually covered by Grace Jones as well, that song. Grace oh, Jones, yeah. she of View to a Kill fame. I'm uh, sure that's the credit that she likes popping up <laughs> yeah. the moment her name comes up. <laughs> View to a Kill and just being sort of mental in, in general. <laughs> um, so anyway... Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the band played a bunch of kind of local gigs around their, the, the Basildon area and were signed to Mute Records for their debut album in 1991, Speak and Spell. Um, in the main, it was written by Vince Clark, featured the hit single Just Can't Get Enough, which mm. is still to this day an incredibly big song. Mm. Um, massive song, uh, obviously. Peaked in the UK album chart at number 10, Speak and Spell, and went to number 192 in the United States of America. Um, after that, they um, became, oh, sorry, I should say they, Vince Clark became quite disillusioned with the band and with touring and with playing. I mean, they've said themselves around this time when they first were a band, they would do anything. They would do any TV show. They would do any press they would just do whatever they wanted you know whatever anybody asked them to do um some people have sort of assumed that the musical direction that the band took was the sort of catalyst for vince clark leaving mm -hmm. um in actual fact I, i'm not sure that's true i've seen an interview with vince clark from uh, talking about this time and he said that because he was such a a sort of single-minded person um he didn't like people interfering with the music that he was making and he realized that because of synthesizers and because of computers he could make the music that he wanted to make I'd alone say. he didn't need mm -hmm. martin gore he didn't mm -hmm. need andy fletcher so he went off and um decided that he was going to just make music on his own now this is the early 80s and i think the other piece of context that we should add in here is that the kind of um Depeche Mode are Depeche Mode were using synths, but they were not, and they never tried to be Tangerine Dream or, like I say, Craftwork. Those bands are making synthesized music, composing these kind of twenty-plus-minute epic songs. That's not what Depeche Mode were doing. Depeche Mode were doing using the same techniques to make three-minute-long pop songs. And Britain at that at that time in those kind of early days. I suppose it would also be the early days of MTV. You've got stuff like Flock of Seagulls, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, Thompson Twins, even early Talk Talk as well, um, becoming hugely popular, uh, not just in the UK, but also in America as well. Um, to me, it kind of, it does seem odd knowing what we now know about Vince Clark and what we know about Depeche Mode that he didn't want to be a part of the kind of, of that, boom of stuff because obviously vince clark went on to form erasure but first he formed yazoo with alison moyer uh who you may know various songs of their don't go is a big song of theirs um uh you know obviously erasure were a huge band in their own right a lot more colorful and cartoony and poppy than um than depeche mode ended up being he actually wrote the song only you which mm is a big song as yep. well yep. um and offered it to depeche mode who turned it down oh right 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but you know, this was uh, this was a uh, you know the early days of synthesized music mm. were seen as kind of an 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 odd thing. Gary Newman, as I said, Tangerine Dream, Kraftwerk, um, obviously. If you've heard Warm Leatherette, you'll go, ah, yes. You know, early kind of industrial throbbing gristle, that sort of thing, yeah. were were seen as, you know, the, the whole German movement was seen as a sort of weird thing. Whereas Depeche Mode were the kind of innovators of synth pop, of taking that approach and making it into pop songs was, rather than trying to make big kind of epic synth orchestras you know so the craft works uh, and so on and so forth were seen as the avant-garde side of it maybe more of a kind of um uh maybe even a classical composition sort of style yeah, of it yeah. no verse and chorus necessarily mm. i'm not saying that they definitely didn't but whereas depeche mode was trying to write hooks trying to write choruses trying to write big things that would stick in your head and you could sing yeah. back and dress up and ridiculous clothing the too yeah the the early the early days of using those things i don't think people thought well this is a this is a commercial there are there are you know commercial uh ends to this type of thing mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and i think you know if, if you if you're familiar with a lot of the stuff that i'm talking about it wasn't commercial and it isn't commercial whereas depeche mode came along and kind of made it commercial i guess gary newman had had you know, yeah. our friends electric with tube army and cars as well. But yeah. even those songs, they're not, they're not poppy poppy. Do you know what I mean? They're not, they're still quite stark sounding. They're mm. still like our friends electric is not a upbeat danceable pop song in the same way as, I don't know, something, you know, like my Sharona or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. I see mm. what you're saying. Yeah. So Depeche Mode were, I think, you know, innovators in, in that sense. And then along came a lot of other bands who were like, ah, you can actually, you know, the Human League. Ah, you can actually make pop songs that will get in the charts from, from doing this. Um, they were hated in the UK around that time. Absolutely hated by the press. Seen as a kind of teeny bopper band. Um, a music press, like I said, who were brought up on guitars and rock bands and who didn't consider electronic music, particularly electronic pop music, to be real "quote unquote" music? Mm -hmm. um, doubly, you know, you add in the fact that when Vince Clark left, who was their primary songwriter, mm -hmm. just written off. Oh, that happened for a minute. It's over now. It's completely seen as a fad. Um, uh, the um, the founder of uh, of Mute Records, da um, Daniel Miller, who will be coming up quite a lot, uh, actually said. Um, that the band were hated, the reviews were scathing, people really despised them because they didn't think that they were quote-unquote British. They weren't British enough. Um, Martin Gore what, remembers what one of... the years fucking crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Martin Gore remembers um, an early reviewer uh, which said that Depeche Mode would appeal to disaffected youths and Germans. He was right. In both cases, well, they yeah. did. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, it, they actually managed to do a bit more than that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, the band, um, after Vince Clark left, the band recruited Alan Wilder to replace him after placing an ad in the enemy saying, name band, synthesize, must be under 21. Um, Alan Wilder was 22 at the time, but due to being classically trained as a pianist, he was hired all the same. Initially, um, he was hired for no other reason than to play Vince Clark's parts live. 
that was it. Uh, they found that they were find it quite difficult to play those parts live, so they decided to hire someone as a kind of a colorist for mm-hmm. for, for for the band. Um, he started to add in little bits to Martin Gore's compositions as Martin Gore took over as the sort of primary songwriter. Someone to um, add texture and little accoutrements mm, and little um, flourishes. Yeah. But his influence in the band, as we will probably discuss, plays a huge part in changing kind of what they sound like, um, pushing them uh, to play to Gore's strengths um, and use the increasingly fluid. I mean, this is one of the things already, I would say, the kind of the increasingly fluid changing technology of the time um, you can actually hear over a very, very short period. Uh, if you go back to Warm Leatherette in 1978 and then you fast forward seven years to, or, or, or yeah, seven, eight years to Black Celebration, the difference in the quality of sound between those two albums or those two, any song from that record and that particular song is massive. And the thing that we always say about electronic music, whether it be EDM, dance music, whatever it is, is that it tend, I mean, and possibly the reason why Depeche Mode sound dated to fresh ears today, mm-hmm. if you want to say that, um, is that this type of music, it just moves at such a pace. And particularly in those days, it was moving at such a pace. Um, I, th- that I, th- was, I think the mm. underlying part there is particularly in those days. I was just going to mm. throw in, uh, I think you can hear the um, amount that the technology has moved on between Just Can't Get Enough, one of Depeche Mode's biggest songs, but from yeah. their first song, uh, from, sorry, from their first album. And uh, and music for the masses, and there's only is it six years in between those yep. two records? I mm-hmm. think you can hear it between those those two. So so yeah, I, I agree even yeah. more, more even strongly even more strongly than what you said. Yeah, yeah. So um, the band released four more albums before we get to music for the masses. 1982's A Broken Frame, which was entirely written by Martin Gore, fairly kind of unremarkable in their back catalogue. If I'm being completely honest, um, hit the UK chart at number eight peaked at number 177 in the United States. Uh, 1983's Construction Time Again, the first album that brought in slightly more industrial elements, um, Mm. features the massive Everything Counts, which is brilliant. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the first time the band worked at the infamous Hansa Studios in Berlin, which we spoke about um, a lot during our Acting Baby special, if you want to go back and get the the sort of the full chat about that place. where most of Bowie's uh, Berlin trilogy was recorded as well. That peaked at number six in the UK and didn't chart in the United States of America. Mm, um, okay. uh, 1984's Some Great Rewards was their fourth album, which was preceded by the single People of People, which still remains a huge anthem in um, pride circles and was sort of one of their big first big hits around mainland Europe. It's also where they get sort of a bit more dirty, sexy, um mm. uh, with songs like Master and Servant. Mm. Um Dave Garner's rumors. Yes, as well. Um uh Dave Garner's spoken about Master and Servant um and the fact that they the only way that they were able to get away with saying the sort of things they say in that song is because they put it within the context of a pop song. He said if that was made with guitars, it probably would have been banned. And it is uh it is a pervy old song, isn't it? At that time, nineteen eighty four, yeah, mm. maybe. PM, PMRC I don't know if they'd started at this point, but they were certainly probably starting to get annoyed mm-hmm. about this sort of shit. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe maybe yeah. that's right. Yeah. 
it went in at number five in the UK and peaked at number 51 in the United States of America. And then we come to the album prior to the record that we're going to be talking about properly today, which is 1986's Black Celebration, which um, features the song Stripped as covered by Rammstein. And the album that Trent Reznor has named as the inspiration for Pretty Hate Machine. Mm-hmm. Um, it peaked at number four in the UK and at number 90 in the United States of America. So Daniel Miller, who, uh, um, as I said, founded Mute Records and produced all of the band's albums up to this point. He also produced Black, Black Celebration. And due to the fact that um, the band had always said they wanted to kind of try a different technique with the way that they make records every time they make a new record. Um, he said he wanted the band to live the album and proposed that they met every day from the start of recording until it was finished and not to have a day off in between, just to carry on working, 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 working. They agreed. It was incredibly intense. They only had one day off between flying to Hansa Studios and starting the album. So they flew in, had a day off, started work on the album, and then they were away constantly without any breaks whatsoever that can, is all they did i can see on wikipedia here it doesn't give the exact dates but it was recorded between november 1985 and january 1986 so we can assume mm. it was a two-month recording period yeah without any break at all um which leads to that kind of claustrophobic sound that you hear on the record um the team hold on had... they didn't break for christmas that's just occurred to me they didn't break for christmas that's insane probably not wow. well, I mean, mate, who knows well i'm assuming Mm. if they only break for one day Uh, maybe christmas day maybe that's what it was Mm, yeah possibly um no 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 the day they had they flew in and then had a day off and then they started the next day oh so they flew into berlin stopped and had like oh we're in berlin and then like oh we start tomorrow and that was it no breaks at all mental um um that team that they were that were working on the record at that point felt like they were, the band sort of felt like they were starting to repeat themselves and they didn't want to work like that again. It was an exhausting record. Um, Black Celebration also is the first time they worked with Anton Corbin, who we're going to talk about more in the Violator chat, who's gone on to direct kind of all of their subsequent music videos. Um, it's also, as I mentioned, the it's maybe not the first time. It's the first time you get a full album um, where Gore's lyrics take a more kind of pessimistic and negative tone. I mean, the opening line on Flies on the Windscreen, for example, is uh, death everywhere. Um, there are flies on the windscreen for a start, reminding us we could be torn apart tonight. Um, just as an example of the opening line from mm-hmm. this kind of teeny bopper pop band. Mm-hmm. Um, the band also began working heavily at creating their own synth parts rather than sampling like they used to do a lot of sampling there's a there's a great (laughs) a great quote from martin gore where he says we couldn't just go into a studio and bang a hammer on a bit of iron and sample it and try and make a song out of it again (laughs) um (laughs) so they started trying to create their own sounds from keyboards rather than kind of using samples and you know Mm -hmm. but anyway um this recording session took its toll on the band a lot and there is quite a bit of interband tension um for me black celebration which is sort of seen as a, a landmark Uh, a landmark record for Depeche Mode and certainly a landmark record for their evolution into the more alternative sphere of things is a very, very good record. 
I, I really like it. I mean, there's not many Depeche Mode records, um, certainly from this point onwards, that I would say I, I don't like, right? Okay. Um, but for me, I think, I mean, I think Strip stands out a mile. Mm-hmm. I just think it stands out an absolute mile. I mean, for all the talk of the kind of the darkness of the record, I think lyrically there is a lot of darkness in the record, but musically, Stripped is the only song on the record that really hits hard. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of very, very good songs on the record, very good pop songs, very kind of sleek, dark pop songs. But there's nothing that really hits as hard as Stripped on that record okay. for my money. Okay. I don't know if you've listened to Black Celebration. I haven't. Of- um, the um, uh, They do play the title track on 101, don't they? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, do they play Stripped as well? can't remember now yeah, I'm fami- do, yeah. Okay. i mean that, I'm, on the album they do anyway on the oh, set, I see. they played it alive. i'm familiar with stripped um because of the ramstein cover i can't I, god have i heard the original i can't even bloody remember to be honest with you um I, yeah I, ca- I can't talk too much about it really um because i've i've not heard the album as a full quite liked the song black celebration when i watched it on the uh 101 documentaries we'll get into a bit later i was like oh it's quite mm-hmm. nice i certainly think um I'm not going to go into this too much because, um, you know, ha- like hands up, I haven't haven't heard any of these records that we've just talked about. But certainly uh, 101 is a live concert slash um, uh, documentary movie, which we'll get into a little bit later. And certainly the songs that I didn't recognize as much, i.e. the songs which are from these records, I did mm. not enjoy anywhere near as much as the Music for the Masses um, stuff. It, but then but then you know it was in some cases it was literally the first time i'd heard them um in yeah. some cases it wasn't um it's kind of crazy to think that for example people are people you know pe- <laughs> today might have been the first time i'd ever heard the depeche mode version of people are people oh, really? uh, maybe i mean i'm, I'm again I'm, i've probably heard it out and about and blah 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 but i've never like gone to put it on but i'm really familiar with people are people because of the perfect circle version um and it was really an odd experience listening to the original uh because i'm so familiar with the perfect circle version which is far slower mm. a bit more dour a mm. uh, bit more um a bit more melancholy i think mm. um and it was quite alien and weird listening to the depeche mode one i'm not going to sit here and say i mean i'm not going to say sit here and say one's better than the other I, I i certainly prefer the perfect circle version but that's just due to familiar <laughs> the eyes wide that's due that's just due to familiarity as opposed mm-hmm. to actually if it's any better if it is actually better or not um yeah. but yeah that's you know um i don't know if i maybe just because we're not going to go into it later i i don't know if i should say this or not um and i do realize it's one of their biggest ever songs uh, i think it's their second biggest song on um uh spotify when just can't get enough came on i i think i i've garnered an awful lot of respect for depeche mode over the last couple of weeks and i do think uh when i realized that it was depeche mode who'd written that song i do think i lost a good 20 percent of that respect that i garnered for them i fucking hate that song really <laughs> yeah i think it's fucking dreadful um but there you go brilliant yeah no i hate it i absolutely hate it it's a great song. i think i think it's everything that's wrong with pop music but there you go in in what sense it feels it sounds like like to me i can see a through line between that song and like wigfield like it's Mm. it's it's not a million miles up okay okay, look it's better than wigfield 
I'm not going to be a right cunt about it, but um, it's just kind of the the main keyboard hook. I just find really irritate, really irritating. I just find it really annoying. Um, again, I'm not saying that it's objectively bad or anything like that. I'm just fine. I'm just saying I find it really irritating. I was like, oh, Depeche Mode wrote this. Right. <laughs> okay. I mean, well, Vince Clark wrote that. Let's yeah. Be very yeah, clear yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, Vince yeah. Clark. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Just can't get enough. Well, knowing that, I don't think I want to go in on Erasure too much. <laughs> Let's <laughs> Mate, just Erasure say that. Got some fucking absolute uh, bangers. Maybe. Um, maybe they do. Maybe they do. You know. But anyway, back to black yeah. celebration Sorry, yeah, yeah. which has got some great songs in it i mean a question of time is is brilliant um shake the disease is on 101 which is was not actually on black celebration until the um the kind of 2006 remaster yeah, series mm-hmm. that came out uh which i think is a fucking great song as well mm-hmm. like really really good um but that evolution of what you were just talking about the vince clark super shiny yeah poppy like real uber bubblegum teeny bopper pop thing they started with um and you know the innovation of them becoming uh a synth pop band as mm, opposed to a mm. synth band with where they are on on black celebration i've always sort of thought to myself i wonder why that happened now it's obvious why it happened because you know you, you listen to martin gore and dave garn talk about the sort of bands that they were listening to around that time um and it's obviously fairly uh um uh, natural that progression mm-hmm. i think it's really yeah, natural I can see but also natural. Yeah. but also i think kind of 1986 1987 um you know like i say early electronic music was dark but then the success of Depeche Mode or Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark or Flock of Seagulls or Ultravox, um, it wasn't really, it was, that thing was never really cool, I don't think. Mm. It was never really cool. And it took, um, again, a, another incredibly important moment, I think, in the evolutionary steps of electronic music. It kind of took Blue Monday by New Order for people to go, ah. You can actually mm-hmm. make this shit sound still commercially successful, but also cool. Mm. Mm. Um, so, I mean, you know, <laughs> to say Blue Monday is influential is like, yeah, water is wet. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. at this point, ev- everybody knows Blue Monday is an incre- like an incredibly important pop song. One of the, pro- if you probably depict like the most, the, the, 40 most important songs in the history of british popular music uh, blue blue monday would be closer to number one than it would be number 40 even i like blue monday and i'm a right cunt mm. when it comes to this sort of thing so as as we've just heard <laughs> i actually don't care for blue monday that Do you much not? i have to say it's a massive it's a massive new order fan i think blue monday is a bit like killing in the name like, uh-huh, uh-huh, if uh-huh. I make the, the 20, if I make a playlist of the 20 best Rage Against the Machine songs, Killing in the Name ain't getting in it. No mm, chance. Mm. And Blue Monday is not getting in the 20 best New Order songs. Not a chance. Mm. Sorry, everyone. Okay, it's still good. It's still good. But um, I really, I really, I actually really like Blue Monday. But, but Blue Monday convinced the sort of people because of their background as well as how good the song was i think blue monday convinced a lot of people 
who would not be willing to listen to music that was not proper music made by guitar and drums to listen to a different type of music. And it gave it a kind of legitimacy, which um, I think was quite inspirational for some of these bands. Yeah. Depeche Mode being the ones who kind of took that ball and ran the furthest with it. And Blue Monday was uh, released 1986, we should say, to give it context, which was the same mm. year that Black Celebration was released. Same, same year as Black Celebration, yeah. yeah. Should probably also point out at this point that um, Orgy covered Blue Monday. So um, that's uh, something which you should never, ever listen to in your life. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why we needed to point that out at all. Um, anyway, so uh, it, what I'm saying is um, Black Celebration incredibly influential record uh incredibly important record in Depeche Mode's career thought of by a lot of um the more metal and rock crowd as one of you know one of two albums one of one of one of two or three albums that get brought up a lot as you know the kind of the most important point to listen to Depeche Mode in could you I'm, run through those two or three for me now? Because I sort of don't know this. Well, Black Celebration, Violator, and um, Songs of Faith and Devotion. Oh right, would be would be the three. I okay. think. Okay. Um, I don't agree with yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> but okay, <laughs> we'll get into that later. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I can. Well, I'm gonna. I can understand it. Mm. Uh, but yeah, mm, but mm, but I don't agree with it. Um, as the band, so as basically where we've got to in this is the band go into recording music for the masses and they do so in a place i think of of steady progress slight frustration that we weren't crossing over worldwide into being a huge act i mean you know they were sort of derided for the most part in britain not really taken seriously not really taken legitimately um they were starting to get a kind of cult following in america and they were doing pretty well in places like Switzerland, weirdly, Germany, France, Spain. Um, they they were they were doing that. Those that was kind of their main like place where they could go and and do well. Um, so going into the recording of the record, the band, as I said, felt they needed a change um, from Daniel Miller, who you know. Uh, had done all of their records uh, at that point, but having done Black Celebration, he actually volunteered to step away from the project. Martin Gore said, we felt like we needed some fresh impetus and Daniel was in charge of Mute, who were getting really big on the indie scene, so he probably didn't have time to be making a record with us. Uh, instead, they roped in Dave Bascom. Um, Dave Garn had heard the uh, the Tears of Fears album that Dave Bascom had did and was really impressed with it. Obviously, that's got stuff like you know, everybody wants to rule the world on it. What's it called? Songs from the Big House. Um, and he thought that's the sort of big sound that we want. Um, Andy Fletcher has said of the decision to get Dave Bascom in and to get rid of Daniel Miller that sometimes you just need some new jokes, a new t person to take the piss out of, um, which inspired <laughs> the title of the documentary about the album called Sometimes You Do Need Some New Jokes. That's what that documentary is called if you want to watch it. It's okay. very good. Um Although uh, many people have said that really this album was actually produced by Alan Wilder and Dave Bascom is really just an engineer for the record. Um, okay. Yeah. So Dave Bascom obviously came in and had ideas and stuff, but still that way of working uh, 
the Depeche Mode still not quite entirely ready to let that go. I don't know. That's just a rumor. I don't have. I can't say or not say, but that's what I've heard. Um, but the sessions themselves, by all accounts, were far more drama-free, a lot more fun. Um, Martin Gore had been living in Berlin. He just moved back to London. Um, Dave Garner had just become a father for the first time, and um, Alan Wilder had released recently an experimental solo album which was inspired by the work of philip glass so everybody was sort of happy and sort of content um and willing to kind of find a formula that was going to work for them in the studio and stick to it which kind of manifested itself as um as gore writing a a song structure uh wilder adding his own flourishes to it and the band kind of getting together to fill it out and debate it over the recording process. Um, Alan Wilder is described as being the flesh of Depeche Mode, um, the one that brought the kind of layering, animal, classical instrumentation, uh, a real understanding of music to the band, um, which, like, to my ears, it's the first time I think that they perfect that on this record. Mm. That's my own person. That, that's personally what I think. I think this is... Um, this is a record where I think you do hear much more of the flesh in Depeche Mode than you ever had heard before. Hmm. Don't know if you agree with that, Rimfrey, from your limited knowledge of their uh, early work. I, I don't. I don't feel like I'm. I'm. Uh, I don't feel like I'm. Uh, I, I. I. I could say either way, but but um, certainly. I mean, I certainly suspect I would prefer this record to the earlier works, just from the little that I've heard. But um, I imagine that's probably the case, yes. Mm. So um, the band went to Paris to start recording. They already had the title, Music for the Masses, in the can. They decided that's what they wanted to call it. Baskin said it was great as that uh, if you've got that, then you know what you're, that you're working with people who know what they want and where the ideas will be heading. Um, Gore said that the title of the album is ironic, as sounds of the record are the exact opposite of the music for the masses. He said that he was inspired um, to, to create the title as he found an album called Music for the Millions in an old classic music shop, and he found it really funny. He said, we thought it was ironic because we never felt that we fitted in with the mainstream. So Music for the Masses for us had a tiny tint of irony that was often missed by other people. Uh, the recording session started in Paris at the Guillem Tell studio, which Bascom has described as being a brilliant old cinema. It had all these old instruments and really interesting high ceiling rooms. Those big chimes you hear in Pimp, for example, those were all just things that we found in the studio. For the first week, we just went around the stairwells, bashing everything and sampling it. Doesn't sound like a bad job, Renfrey? <laughs> no, that sounds like loads <laughs> of fun. I'd love to do that. I'd love mm. to do that. And uh, and those, but I mean, well, I'm sure we're getting to it later, but those bells sound lovely. I like those they bells. They really do. Mm, yeah. I, like yeah. I mean, it, it's, again, Music for the Masses, a much airier sounding Depeche Mode record than anything I'd heard before. Um, electronic music at that point, I don't think had managed to capture uh, much in the way of, I mean, I guess, you know, if you're talking, like I say, Tangerine Dream or Craftwork, those sort of bands did evoke a, a, a feet you know a kind of um a uh, feeling around them whereas i think a lot of the pop bands from that time it was just like boom let's go mm. let's make a pop song three mm-hmm. minute pop sounds like this it doesn't really have a uh a sort of a more spacious quality to it and i think that this record does and it's cool mm. um wilder 
had a very specific idea with what he wanted to do with the record. Um, he said he wanted everything to sort of start little and then he wanted to make everything big. He said he'd been listening to a lot of Philip Glass and The Minimalists. We wanted to start really small and keep adding and adding until you had the kitchen sink in there at the end. Dave Garn said electronic metal is where we're at. Um, and that's kind of the 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 idea and the the sort of the genesis and the mindset going into recording this album and creating it hmm. um we'll talk about the album at the moment i suppose we sort of covered 1987 because you know 1987 we did talk about during the joshua tree um but it's probably just worth mentioning that a lot of big albums were released that year let's do a um, little reminder because i actually uh, i could do with a little reminder if, if you don't mind well, the big one, uh, Guns N' Roses. Oh, I, I know them. Uh, I know them. Uh, you know, Appetite for Destruction came out. Um, Guns N' Roses who get a mention in 101 a mm. fair bit. Um, <laughs> mm. So Guns N' Roses uh, obviously broke big. We had Document by R.E.M. And that whole yes. kind of um, American indie thing was happening. And in England as well, the Smiths, Strange Ways, Here We Come. You know, also you've got like sister by sonic youth came out that year yeah um you have got uh yo bum rush the show by public enemy which was you know as hip-hop was breaking you're living all over me by dinosaur jr again like american indie kind of coming yeah, yeah. to uh sort of bubbling under um and then obviously there's the joshua tree which is pretty big and Quite the superstar big. the superstar albums of the time hysteria by def yes, leppard yeah. came out that year um you got Licensed to Ill by the Beastie Boys came out that year. Um, Sign of the Times by Prince came out that year. Uh, you've got Michael Jackson's Bad came out that year mm, as well, mm. which is a you know a pretty big album. Tango in the Night by Fleetwood Mac. Mm -hmm. So you've got uh, and um, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me by The Cure again in Britain. The kind of the the mm -hmm. the, the, the swelling of of Indian uh, or sort of early alternative rock in America and indie in the United Kingdom, plus these massive superstar albums, plus stuff like Actually by the Pet Shop Boys, which yeah. came out that year as well, and the sort of continuation of synth music. Um, although looking at it, that has started to sort of go away a bit. Um, Darklands by the Jesus and Mary Chain, Electric by the Cult, Among the Living by Anthrax, came out that year as well um kick by an excess i guess mm -hmm. another big mm -hmm. kind of multi-billion selling rock sort of superstar records um girls 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 by motley Crue, floodlands by sisters of mercy for that kind of gothy mm -hmm. that's i guess that's sort of a little bit relevant to it as well yeah. children of god by swans i think is not probably not really the same thing at all but you know um yeah, so it, it's it is a you know 1987 is an interesting year. I think it's really interesting because music for the masses um, has um, very 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 brief connections or very very brief influences with a fair few of those records. There's some of those records mm. where it just doesn't have anything in common whatsoever. I think, but you know, I mean, for example, if you were being really layman about it, you could say, for example, that. Um, you know, music's for the masses was sort of a cross between Pet Shop Boys and Sisters of Mercy. I think that would be a bit of a mm. lazy comparison, but that would get you at least in the ballpark, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, and there's not really, I mean, surprisingly, when you consider the success that they started to have 
as a live band mm. in America. When you look at what American college radio stations were playing and what the kind of the the, the, the college rock thing, REM, Pixies. Sisters of Mercy, Pixies, Sonic Dinosaur Youth. Jr., Dinosaur Junior, yeah. um, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's not Depeche Mode. It's not Depeche Mode. <laughs> no, it's, it's not, not Depeche, Depeche Mode. And yet Depeche Mode were much more looked at as one of those bands mm. than they were here in the UK where they probably would have been looked at. I mean, probably not even as cool as you two. Mm. More like In Excess or Def mm. Leppard. Do you mm. know what I mean? You mm. probably would be more likely in the UK to, I mean, even probably even Def Leppard would have been considered cooler than Depeche Mode at this point wow. by the UK music press. Well, I mean, I've actually got on me. I, no, I'm all right. Thanks. Um, <laughs> I've actually got um, I've actually got NME's top uh, fifty albums of the year. Oh, go What's on, the top top sixty. I fancy fact. a laugh. Go on. Um, well, it's not really that funny to Is be it, fair. No? Yo bum, yo bum, rush the show by Public Enemy was their mm-hmm. album of the year. Um, Sign of the Times by Prince was second. Strange Ways Here We Come by The Smiths was third. Sister by Sonic Youth was fourth. Frank's Wild Tears by Tom Waits was fifth. The Joshua Tree was sixth. Um, very Criminal little, Mind very by Scott LaRock. So far, yeah, very no, no. Out, yeah. Scott LaRock, Criminal Mind was seven. I'm not familiar with that album. No, um, Paid in Full by Eric B, B and Rakeem. Brilliant. Um, here we go. You can laugh at this a little bit. The People Who Grinned Themselves by the House Martins. No, thanks. Oh, um, I, I can't laugh at it because I don't yeah. know it, but okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, actually, by the Pet Shop Boys. It was number 10. And then just outside it, you've got songs about fucking by Big Black at 12. Mm. George Best by The Wedding Present at 14. Darklands by The Jesus and Mary Chain at 15. License to Ill by The Beasties at 16. Document by R.E.M. at 17. Children of God by Swans at 19. Um, Wow. (laughs) Hearsay by Alexander O'Neill at 21. Fair enough. (laughs) Um, Got no beef with Alexander O'Neill. But you look all the way down. I mean, Warehouse by Husker Du is 29. Locust Abortion Technician by Butthole Surface is 30. Um, St. Julian by Julian Cope sort of maybe slightly related to Depeche Mode again the wood I mean they deny it but you know mm-hmm. um Time Boom XB Devil Dead by Lee Scratch Perry at 34 wow okay. uh No More Cocoons um by Jello Biafra is 42 uh-huh I mean there's actually Pleased to Meet Me by The Replacements at 48 Box Frenzy by Pop Will Eat Itself at 49 uh, a ton of Love by Bruce Springsteen, 54. Wow. Uh, that's not, that's 59 not, even, by that's not even a very good Springsteen record, <laughs> Tunnel of Love. But nowhere to be seen. It's Depeche Mode, wow. It's Depeche Mode. Yeah, that's And when you look shocking. at, you know, it, it, it's not, it's, it's not, an you know, this is not an embarrassing, um, this is not an embarrassing uh, list at all. It's also no. not, it's also not featured in Q's best albums of 1987 either. Right. Wow, this is uh, this is stunning. I mean, I mean, you know, not to labour the point because obviously I'm fully aware of uh, how big these bands, and any band that plays a stadium, I always know. I'm at the forefront of knowing when bands are stadium-sized acts, as we know from yes. the Pink Floyd stuff special. Um, but uh, you know, not to labour the point too much, but Depeche Mode these days, I don't think back then they were stadium-sized, but they were certainly arena-sized, weren't they? Yeah, well, in I mean, yeah, they were. They they after this. I mean, we'll talk about the tour yeah, in a yeah. in a little bit. But you know, certainly on the Black Celebration 
uh, yeah, they they would have been. They, they would have definitely been. Yeah, they were big and big, and they might not have played massive ones. But um, so it wasn't. I down mean, again, to, it wasn't down to the enemy not knowing who they were. Basically, I mean, that's no, a ridiculous thing to suggest. Definitely just, not. They just weren't no, no. cool at all. Wow. Okay. Um, Rolling Stone, just to look on the other side of the pond, where Depeche Mode were actually a bit more popular mm-hmm. and had a bit more credibility. Um, I'm not on it either. Um, document right. is there. Tom Waits is there. Joshua Tree's there. Tunnel of Love was their album of the year. Replacements really? is there. Like, I fucking love the boss, but Tunnel of Love is not a great record. No, it's not. I mean, it's it's really not. It's really not. That's no. stu- That's more embarrassing than the than the enemy list, frankly. Yeah. Wow. Even even the readers list, uh, which gave the Joshua Tree best album. Mm-hmm. Um. Not there. Wow. I mean, these are just big, they're just big albums, to be fair. Mm. Document again, Springsteen again, Momentary Lapse of Reason by Pink Floyd, White Snake, Hysteria, Sign of the Times, Tango in the Night. Big, big albums. Slightly, Bobs. I mean, slightly shocked. I know, I, mm, oh no, actually, I shouldn't be shocked. Either. I was about to say slightly shocked that Appetite for Destruction isn't coming up in these, but you do have to remember, and I've just reminded myself, that Appetite didn't really hit big till 1988, of course. When slow burn, wasn't it? It was a slow burn, so yes, yes, that actually does make sense. Uh, mm. But yes, okay, cool. But I think what you can kind of ascertain, uh, as we said, really, in... Um, in the in the U two special, and we we made the sort of point that U two were, um, again, no pun intended, but a bit of an island to themselves whilst they were making a blues album. I like it. Um, it it, it sort of looks like synth music has started to kind of drop out of. It's not an exciting new thing anymore. Mm. You know, I mean, you go back to the the very early eighties, and Gary Newman was ex- was thought of as this alien who'd come down from nowhere, and people were talking about Tubeway Army, like, oh my god, it's incredible, and he had this incredibly passionate cult following. And if you go back and look at, you know, those those um, those reviews and those albums at the time, and uh, you know, there was quite there's a lot of critical acclaim for stuff like. Gary Newman and Kraftwerk. Obviously not so much for Depeche Mode, but even at this point, it's not even like um, it's just a kind of cool underground thing. It's kind of um, it's kind of not really cool underground. It's kind of not really selling. And there's sort of only one band left. I mean, even by not, you know, when I think of, you know me, I love fucking love Duran Duran. Mm, but Duran Duran, Duran Duran had peaked with Rio and Rio isn't really as as synthy as 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 they get. Mm-hmm. Um, 80, is that 84, 85? 85, I believe. 85, or 80, okay. Oh, 86, sorry. Okay. Um, no, yeah, it's 86. Uh, and they they stop go, you know, that they are a they are a band with drums and guitars and bass and live instruments, and they start very much leaning on that in the sort of second half of the eighties with kind of you know commercially deteriorating results as well mm, mm, like mm. they they really do um so the pesh mode are again they're, they're not it's not like they're a a cool band at all. i mean they, they weren't a cool band in the uk at all but i think they were sort of i don't know you would you would have thought that this is the point where they sort of start to go away 
And yet, to me, sort of creatively the peak of the band, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly, I mean, I've hinted at it already from the little that I've heard, which really, in terms of full albums, we are only talking about um, Music for the Masses Violator and Songs of Faith and Devotion. Um, for my money, this is easily their creative peak um by mm. by a country mile and um having spoken to you a little bit about uh, we've tried not to talk too much um about our individual feelings on this one um just to make it a bit more of a surprise but um i've talked to you a little bit about it and when you told me that uh, this wasn't this wasn't actually considered a so-called classic depeche mode album i was in disbelief um and that is just purely going on going in blind listening to those three records in a row kind of thing i for me it just seemed blindingly obvious that this was the best one <laughs> mm. um well let's let's talk about the album then so renfrey you listened to it before back in the day you've sort of hinted at it a bit um let's talk about the finished product mm -hmm. of music for the masses what do you reckon I think this is a really fantastic, um, very consistent, uh, very interesting record. Um, I don't want to keep wanging on about it. Obviously, there is that, you know, block that I have with the synthesized stuff. But um, of those three albums that I just named, um, it was the easiest for me to get into by quite some distance because I just felt like songwriting wise the songs were by far the most interesting of the three um <clears throat> often when we do this we talk about having to try to pick sort of favorite songs and stuff like this and i have managed to do that and we could go into that in a little bit but it actually took me a little while to kind of decide to kind of go mm. well what is my favorite song on this record um because i do think it's remarkably consistent um throughout uh goodness me what else can i say i i mean it's a it's a little bit difficult for me because i don't feel like i have that th this um the the knowledge behind this music as a whole but um i cannot think of many records that are this synth led that i like as much as this record i mean honestly off the top of my head i'm sure there are more than just this there's fever daydream by black queen which is obviously a similar thing but in a totally different era uh struggling <laughs> like, <Wow. laughs> like you know and look i'm not an expert on this kind of thing so so i you know i i'm, I'm there's probably a whole bunch that are great that i haven't heard so you know but um i i i really i think this is a really strong really consistent record i love the dark gothicness of it i mean something i don't want to tangent too much but something you've listed right at the beginning of this podcast a bunch of bands who have covered or slash been influenced by Depeche Mode and you mentioned the likes of Smashing Pumpkins, Marilyn Manson, Nine Inch Nails uh give me a few more um uh well we said uh Fear Factory, Fear Factory. um Deftones do you say Deftones? I didn't that's a great shout as well yeah mm -hmm. I think um I think all of those bands have a darkness to them a sort of sort of dark gothic edge i personally i mean unless you work for the enemy none of those bands sound alike um 
and if you work for the enemy, <laughs> just put down your fucking pen because you're a fucking idiot. Or just, in fact, don't put down your pen. Just don't go anywhere near rock music because uh, you don't understand it. Um, oh, The Cure was a good shout as well. I mean, um, yeah. uh, I don't know if you could go as far as to say that Johnny Cash was influenced by him, but Johnny Cash covered Personal Jesus, you know, um, <laughs> trapped. <laughs> uh, you know, Ghost uh do an yeah. amazing cover which we'll talk about later i would have i imagine I would imagine but they all have that kind of dark gothic streak to them placebo there we go placebo is mm-hmm. another great example as well yeah um whilst placebo and uh marilyn Manson, ramstein ramstein do not sound the same they have a outsider ethos ethos dark gothic vibe to them which i think um many many people don't many people in the mainstream don't understand and therefore are kind of sneery towards but the people who do get it and the people who do love it entrench themselves in that culture um in 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 a way that i really really admire a lot of the times i mean you know some depeche mode fans are fucking annoying as fuck as we're going to get in, onto when we talk about 101 uh fuck <laughs> me uh fucking hell um but you know i i do i do love that sense of a band being able to unite outsider factions people um well i'm, I'm predominantly talking about goths really aren't i but that kind of gothic thing you know that sort of you know there's a sneery mainstream attitude of like oh aren't you being a bit morbid and it's like well maybe it is a bit morbid but also maybe i probably have a better relationship um, of mortality you know with my own mortality and my own sense of death and yada 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 than you and you know the cure the cure is another one that i absolutely should have shouted out as well um Mm. you know the cure sound nothing like Ramstein, really if you if you get into the actual music side of it but there is there is a through line there is and and Depeche Mode I almost feel like or I'm beginning to learn at least Depeche Mode are kind of like (laughs) I feel like Depeche Mode are the band that all of those bands that I've just mentioned look up to they're like at the top Mm. of the pyramid in in a lot of ways or or they're kind of responsible for influencing all of those bands and I suppose I'm bring to bring this around to music for the masses. I think this was the record that I heard that on the most, and I think that's probably why I responded to it the best as well. Yeah, there's something that Andy Fetcher says in 101 that I thought was really was really interesting when he's been interviewed, and he says um, because he's more kind of responsible for being like the manager, the organizer mm. of the band. Then when we talk about, you really- know, he's a deep purple. I was really impressed with Andy Fletcher. I thought I thought he was great. I thought he came across really well in that documentary. Yeah, he does. Just he does, as an aside. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Go yeah. on. Yeah. Um, but he says, you know, no, it's not important for everybody to be a great musician these days. You know, he's like, we've got Martin, who's a songwriter. We've got Alan, who is a kind of classically trained, perfect musical ear. And you've got this kind of rock star charisma-like explosion in dave garn and he's like and i'm the other one who kind of makes sure everybody does their job yeah and yeah, yeah. and it's an interesting you know team, that, isn't it it's an interesting yeah dynamic. And it's a yeah. really really interesting dynamic and i think the, the kind of the the beauty for me of music of the masses and i think you know there are there are moments before 
and there are a hell of a lot of moments afterwards mm-hmm. where Depeche, where that team comes together and everybody's slice of the pie adds up to something wonderful. But I don't think that that pie has been as consistently sliced more often than it gets sliced on Music for the Masses. That would be my argument as to why Music for the Masses is the best Depeche Mode album. I couldn't convey it myself, but you've just done it brilliantly. In fact, you've mm. you've kind of, yes, you've. <laughs> I didn't even realise that until you just said it, but that is absolutely, I 100% agree with that. It's the record mm. where it feels like they are working together the best as a team where they are bringing of the three i've heard uh where they are bringing the um each individual element together and and making them work with one another with the best uh with the most amount of synchronicity and Mm. that's why for my money it is the best of those three albums Mm. um and to talk about kind of individual songs i mean picking a favorite for me is really difficult because i actually don't think i'd change anything on this record even there's some weird stuff i mean i want you now is is weird it's made up from an accordion sample and sampled bits of a porn film um oh, right. and it's sung by Mar- yeah and it's it's sung by by martin gore um it's good though it's good it's certainly with i think taken in isolation i would probably be like but within the context of the record i think it it works really really brilliantly um and then you've got stuff like i mean i want to talk about behind the wheel um Mm -hmm. which alan wilder uh describes as an optical illusion of a song Mm. uh he says it's only four chords spiral around and when you reach the top you're back at the bottom again um and that's somebody i mean it's obviously this is the thing isn't it because that song it's slinky and it's sexy thanks to dave garn it's a a really kind of unusual composition mm. due to martin gore's songwriting ability mm. but it's also got great production and it is perfectly serviced and sounds amazing due to alan wilder so that in itself those are those three elements working together that make Depeche Mode great that is them doing that on behind the wheel and also I mean I've never read I've gone sorry uh just in case you're about to move on from behind the wheel it's a really interesting thing for a pop band to do as well because it's essentially a minimalist song it's the Mm. sort of thing that John Adams or Steve Reich would do these are neoclassical composers from the 20th century who um are very avant-garde indeed uh even maybe a john cage uh john cage is yeah. the person who was responsible for 433 is it called the 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 silent the silent track song. blah 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 yeah, yeah. you know which is slightly eye-rolling but at the same time um the behind the wheels a really good example of um and actually a very avant-garde form of songwriting which has been very um successfully and astutely married into a pop direction and that we talked about that before that's extraordinarily difficult to do mm. and um i listened to behind the wheel i don't know half a dozen times before i realized uh i was like oh this is a minimalist composition what i mean by a minimalist composition for those who don't know is basically just like it's elements repeating over and over again but just elements being added gradually over and over it's used a lot in post-rock the, um, the, yeah. the entire point the entire point of, of alan wilder saying you know we we start with nothing and we exactly you know i mean it, the the i don't want to move on from behind the wheel but okay. he said the main 
but he because um he says you know pimp is the best example of that on the record he's like pimp starts off with a key and ends with a whole great big baroque gregorian chant and yes this swirling like turning wheel of sound um uh but i, but again, I might in, agree with him actually in, in mm, terms of it's but, the best example of that yes yeah. yeah of that i mean he said because of like initially when martin gore brought it it's it's kind of i mean again this is what's fucking i think is great about alan wilder is he said he didn't have the idea to keep it kind of he wanted to once he heard the lyrics mm. he wanted to make a song that rolled and the momentum just kept going and going and going and going because he's like it's about driving at first when martin gore brought it in it didn't really sound like that mm. but once i realized that it was this kind of metaphor for going somewhere and a journey he's like i had to keep the momentum and i had to keep it moving constantly so he brought that kind of momentum to it martin gore brings the kind of the basic weird song structure that you just think well you know probably a classical trained a classically trained musician mm. wouldn't write a song with that mind mm. and then dave garn brings um now i've not read i've been looking at this and i've not read it anywhere but i've only read people going oh it's a song about going somewhere this is surely some sort of sadomasochistic song surely behind the wheel does not mean i was this is strap on a dildo and fuck me up the ass this song and it surely (laughs) surely it is i don't know i'm just gonna look up the lyrics um maybe uh my little girl interesting start my little girl drive anywhere do what you want i don't care tonight i'm in the hands of fate maybe i hand myself over on a plate now oh little you can girl do, there's a bit where you do anything yeah uh, 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 oh little girl there are times when i feel i'd rather not be the one behind the wheel come pull my st- come <laughs> comma pull my <laughs> pull my strings watch me move i do anything please sweet little girl i prefer you behind the wheel and me the passenger uh, it sounds like it might be a song about i mean it's a shame you keep saying little girl uh, but it sounds like it might be a song about wanting to be dominated in some way, form or fashion. Yes. Yeah, like I said, the sadomasochistic tendencies of that song. I have never, yeah, 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 yeah. I've never actually seen them say, oh, it's about being dominated or whatever. But mm-hmm. surely, surely it is. I, You've got I, to think it is. I find it very difficult to argue with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Strange it's become Love my new single, by the way. As it, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> Um, uh, um, yeah. uh, any other songs you want to talk about? I'd quite like Never to Let Me Down Again, f- which for me, okay. I have finally mm. decided after a couple of weeks of listening to this record, I was like, I want to pick out a favourite track. Never Let Me Down Again is my favourite song on this album. Uh, it's, why? It's, it's the the big it's the big single from is it? The, this, this record. Didn't even uh, look at, I will say for both this record and Violator, I haven't even looked at what the singles are and what they're not. So mm. I'm again, I'm trying to go in, sort of trying to go in as blindly as possible. Um, mm. Why do I like Never Let Me Down again so much? I don't know. I just think it's fucking great. I just it's think just it's a great. Yeah, it's, it's just an brilliant. absolute banger. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, again, it builds that when those horns, when that kind of horn synth comes in at that at the end mm-hmm. i mean amazing i do think the live version on 101 is it's brilliant where it, it's fucking brilliant i mean they, they finish as an with that, o- don't they? well they, finish with that? they 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 finish the film with it ah okay that's why i'm getting confused okay yeah um they finish the film with it they the, the 
the actual set list is a bit higgledy piggledy from on the film from okay. what they actually played, but we'll talk about that in a little okay. bit. But yes, live, incredible live. I mean, what an absolutely massive opener. And I think not that I want to move on too quickly from Never Let Me Down because it is I don't have much more brilliant. to say on it, but it's fucking great. So I don't mm. mind. But go on. I think it always used to bug me that they got that high up and then they went to the things you said, which is very, very slight and quiet. Well, it's my second favorite um, song on the album. So. <laughs> but I've, yeah, but now as time has progressed, I do think it's, I mean, I almost think, well, how do you, if you don't have anything that can mm. match that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like In Bloom can match Smells Like Teen Spirit. I think it's better, actually. I think it's better. Oh, you uh, absolute, you underground punk, you. <laughs> in Bloom, In Bloom is absolutely incredible. It's a wonderful song. Fuck me. Oh, better than Smells Like Teens. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, for another time, maybe. Okay, but m- my point is, if you can follow up Smells Like Teen Spirit within Bloom. Sure, sure, sure. You could you can keep that momentum going. Yeah, 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 if yeah. you can't follow up Never Let Me Down again with something that is on that the, on the level on the same level, yeah, yeah I understand then do yeah. something completely yeah. different, yeah, and that's, that's what, what they, they do. do. And and yeah. to be fair, like as great as this record is, um, there's nothing else really like Never Let Me Down Again on it. True. I don't think. True. So it's a sensible thing to do. I mean, if they had tried to follow up with, you know, to have and to hold, which is probably the closest to it i guess mm-hmm. but even that's not really or strange love um mm-hmm. i just don't think it would i think it would kind of diminish the power of those songs whereas i agree yeah i think strange love is um personally i think strange love is the closest song to never let me down again on yeah, this probably. record but if they came one after the other i think the power of strange love would be diminished quite exponentially the things you said i think is a fucking great song and actually I mean, confession time. Before, um, before I watched One Hundred and One, um, I probably would have said the things you said was my favourite song on the record, and really? it was quite a last-minute decision to just go, no, fuck it, let, never let me down again, because that version on One Hundred and One just just made me go, oh. Uh, having said that, by the way, the version of the things you said on One Hundred and One is fucking brilliant. Uh, not to take away from that. Yeah, it's great. Um, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, really hard to choose between those songs. I think they're both absolutely wonderful. Um, I kind of want to... I sort of want to give it to... <laughs> I think this is just the um, the sort of uh, the dickhead in me, basically. Now that you said that Never Let Me Down Again is the single, I kind of want to change my mind and say the things you said is my favourite, but that's just me being a dick. Um right. <laughs> But I think they're both brilliant. Um, I think following it with Strange Love is a great shout. I what I really love about this record is like the like I've been listening to the vinyl versions of um, this album mm. because I thought that was the most appropriate way to listen to it. Um, so I've been doing it in a very side one side two mm. manner, and uh, side two is just fucking weird, isn't it? Yeah, like yeah, side is. one is a relatively. Um, uh, relatively pop banger type i mean not in the same sense that not in the same way that violator is but you know it it, it has a far more pop banger commercial bent to it side one i think but side two Definitely. just gets fucking weird at times yeah and actually if i'm honest first time first couple of times i heard it 
um, slightly alienatingly so. Um, the more I've listened to it, the more I've realised that I think side two is easily the equal of side one. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, really, really odd second half of the record with songs like especially I Want You Now to Have and to Hold, um, those kind of songs. Um, I mean, Pimp, the very last song, is I think a really bizarre, grandiose, cinematic, but odd song. Yeah, um, so used as the intro tape so, for so, the tour as well. Yeah, I mean, I I, yeah, I think. Um, so one thing I was going to say to you, I think "Pimp." Whilst it isn't my favourite song on the record, I do like it very, very, very much, and it is right up mm. there. I think "Pimp" arguably has dated far better than the other songs on the record because they're actually using, quote, and I'm doing quotation marks here, yeah. real instruments um they're using those bells that we were talking about they're using these massive grandiose uh choirs and so on and so forth and there's nothing on it which specifically dates it to 1987 whereas uh not in terms of songwriting but in terms of the instrumentation that is used throughout the record every other Mm. song does have stuff that dates it to 1987 i have managed to get over that through listening to this record over and over and over again but I do think that that is the one, the one and only song that from the beginning to the end, you can kind of go, well, this could have been written at any point in history. And I don't think that's true of the rest of the record, if I'm totally honest. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to bring that up and see what you thought about that. Yeah, I mean, I can, I, I can understand that. I mean, certainly as that Pitchfork um piece that i was talking about did i mention that at the start i, can't I think remember you have already. actually no. oh, okay there's a the, the, when they when they were when they re-released these records and reissued them um pitchfork did a review of them and, and and there's a lot of chat in that review which i'll probably when we go to talking about the reception to it um there's a lot of chat in that about saying if you are coming to these records now you might go well why why were people thinking these are some sort of cutting edge band um mm. because it's very difficult to hear those sounds and not be kind of transported to that time for a lot of it yeah um i think the kind of i i think the kind of context of the 80s coming back and being cool helps this record but it also kind of hinders it as well because it kind of because people like you said earlier are taking the 80s thing going oh look remember the 80s um Mm-hmm. they're sort of doing a they're doing a sort of municipal waste mm-hmm. <laughs> do you know what i mean mm-hmm. i think a lot of people are doing a municipal waste and actually i you know i i don't have a problem personally with music in general where like i don't have a problem listening to i think it takes a while to get into this mindset but i now don't have a problem with say listening to um muddy waters mm-hmm. and going listen to that because you know i i used to struggle with the production on stuff like kill em all yeah so yeah, you can yeah. understand and and i think you know i'm not I still do to an I'm extent not, yeah yeah i'm not i'm not unique in that but um but certainly like when i'd get my mum's old blues cds out or whatever and you yeah. would be like fucking hell they yeah, sound yeah, 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 yeah. old as fuck and like yeah. old rock and roll songs and stuff you know when you listen to chuck berry yeah and, yeah. and and little richard and stuff like that and you do go it's really difficult to but once you kind of attune yourself to well look that's what they were working with that's yeah. what those things sound like the and and so it's weird like hearing you talk about the production stuff is weird for me i guess because i don't i just i've got to the point where i sort of just don't really hear it anymore do you know what i mean you grew up with depeche mode right yeah to an to an extent i did yeah i mean i i I, you know i wasn't 
eight or you know this came out when i was seven i wasn't listening to it when i was seven no sure 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 but 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 you discovered Depeche mode in your teens i'm guessing um well we'll talk about the first okay. time i heard them when on violator probably okay. the okay. first time i ever actually heard them at the the actual time um but yeah uh i think you know it's um it's 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 a i think it's fair to it's certainly fair to say that pimp due to the the production on it i what i would say is it sounds the least 80s one yeah, that's that's sort of what i mean yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. that's yeah. fair because it doesn't really sound like an 80s pop song at all it's no. well it's not well it's, it's not most definitely not no but um but uh yeah, I suppose I suppose you've just said it in a glass half full way, and I said it in a slightly glass half empty way. But we're basically saying the same thing, aren't we? Um, but yeah, I, I but I think Pimp is a really interesting song, and like you know, it is interesting when you go from Pimp to Violator. It's like, oh, hello, that's quite different. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, the only other one I wanted to mention uh, was Nothing, particularly um, yeah. myself, because uh, it's funky as fuck, and I like that. Um, but genuine question, I think the other main reason I wanted to answer uh, ask about it, we've already talked about Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails a little bit and how um, mm-hmm. Black uh, what was it called? Black Black Celebration. I was about to say Black Chandelier but that's Biffy Clyro. Black Celebration was influenced by Pretty Hate Machine uh, is nothing um, the record label uh, Trent Reznor's record label named after the Depeche Mode song Nothing or have I to put two and two together there and got five or do you not? Know? I have no idea it's the first time that's ever struck me. Just I was just, just as I was doing a little bit of research today i thought oh i wonder if that's the case trent Reznor's clearly a massive depeche mode fan i yeah. wouldn't be surprised we don't know that for a fact but i wouldn't be surprised in fact. the slightest if yeah. his record label nothing was. it, it seems like the sort of song trent Reznor would like as well doesn't yeah. it yeah it's so not it it's you not might very have just discovered it's not, something it's not very nine inch nailsy that song to be honest but it no. does feel like the kind of song that trent Reznor would like it's got I mean, there's like you say, yeah. But I think, like, like you mentioned, a lot of the second half of this record is weird, just a bit weird. And I think it's another song which is, I mean, it's basically the the song that ends the record proper, really, isn't it? I mean, you could argue that proper. That's the last sort of song, song. Well, Um, Pimp is instrumental, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah apart yeah. from hey, sure sure oh, <laughs> hey, oh. Um, how many yeah. times we'll get in trouble yeah, Go on. the yeah. sample of that. <laughs> um, and uh yeah so i i think it's a kind of it's uh it's it's not the end of the record but it's a cool way to sort of end the record with this quite odd little um like you say it's funky but it's also it's a bit kind of it's a bit bent out of shape. It's it's a bit bent out of shape, I think, nothing. Do you know it's, what I mean? It's sort of weirdly, it's kind of weirdly crooked. Like uh, a lot of the yeah. first half, it's very like, it it feels like, there you go, There's that's where we're going. But then there's stuff on the the second half of the record from kind of, well, I'd say from behind, behind the wheel onwards, the rest of the album feels a bit like distorted. Yes. Like a hall of mirrors. Yes. Of like all yeah. of it. Yeah, um, and I, I love it for that. I love the way that it sort of starts to kind of deteriorate the longer mm. that it goes on. It's, mm. And it starts like this massive superstar pop record mm. with Never Let Me Down Again. And it slowly starts to kind of deteriorate. And by the time you get to Pimp, it's just like... 
Eh? Hellish. Hellish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the whole of Mirrors analogy is great. Yeah. Um, mm. I mean, I think I, I mentioned that Nothing was a really funky song, um, but it's a funky song more in a kind of... It's more Mr. Bungle or Primus than it is Red Hot Chili Peppers. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like. Yeah, I, I mean, sure. it, is, it isn't. It isn't. It isn't Bungle, really. But it, it's more avant-garde funk. Um, it has an avant-garde bent to it, I suppose. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm. Um, but yeah, I really like that song. And uh, yeah, I thought the Trent Reznor thing. I thought you might have known that. I don't know. But um, it's not a crazy theory, is it? I don't think. Yeah. It's not really, no. I mean, I I literally never thought of it before. Um, but but there you go. Um, a little fifteen, I think, is great as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, creepy as fuck. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, it was inspired. Um, uh, Alan Wilder and Dave Garn went to the theatre, and they saw something. I can't remember what it was that they saw. I probably should have written this down. But it was inspired by the work of Michael Nyman. Oh wow. Yeah, 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 I know Michael Nyman. Um, I, I'm just, I mean, just only because I'm on the Wikipedia page now and I didn't know this before, but I'm really surprised to learn that Little 15 was released as a single. Not because it's a bad song, but yeah. because of what you just said about it being uh, scary, like fucking weird and scary. Yeah. Uh, it was released as the final single, but um, yeah, mm. <laughs> wow, okay. Um, mm. Yeah, I like Little 15. Uh, I mean, there isn't a single song on this record I don't like, so, but, um, I, I, but yeah. Uh, well then let's just get on to the release and i suppose because we just briefly mentioned strange love um strange love was actually released as a single on the 13th of april 1987 a full five and a half months before the album itself was released uh whilst the record was still being in the process of being recorded i was going to say we should probably underline how absolutely batshit bonkers a thing to do that would have been in 1987 yeah I mean, it's not a particularly new thing. It's not a particularly new thing these days. No, uh, these days, it's the not. first one, "Drown" by Bring Me the Horizon, came out a year before yeah. "That's the Spirit" came yeah. out. Yeah. Um, but back in those days, to actually go, here's something that we've done in the studio, which will probably be on the album. We don't know yet. Yeah. Here you go. Let's release it as a single. Yeah. Um, fair fucking play to them, and it did well. It got to number two in Germany, uh, number sixteen in the United Kingdom, number fifteen in the United States of America. Um, and um obviously the video with anton corbin was a is a is a very iconic video which as I, as i said in part two we will talk about their relationship with, with anton corbin um it has been described as the most significant moment for the band to help them break america right so even though 50 doesn't sound like a particularly massive number mm. um this was a point where i think you get six months before the album comes out and then you're going to go out and tour it this comes out, gets into the at least gets into the chart in America and starts to make that those people who we will talk about in a little bit, those weird group of people who latched onto Depeche Mode in their massive, massive numbers. Um, that's where I think maybe a lot of them were like, Oh, who are this band? Mm. And then they sort of found out and had a six month wait before the record came out. Yeah. Uh, there are actually 18 different remixes of the song released in the year uh, post if, if its release. Um, I'm, looking, just I'm looking show... at it on Wikipedia. It's fucking bonkers, isn't it? The amount. Of yeah. Yeah. They, they, just don't, they didn't feel like they could quite get it right in their no, mind. I mean, no. <laughs> I think it's fucking great personally. Yeah. I think it's brilliant, but, um, uh, I love the bit where I what is is it even the chorus? Pain when you return in. 
I'll say it again. <laughs> is that actually a chorus? What is that? Is that a chorus? What is it? I love it. I mean, whatever that bit it's is, it's hook. brilliant. I think I'd definitely call it a hook. hook. Um, is it the chorus? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I because think... it starts, it sort of starts with a chorus, doesn't it? It's totally strange love. Strange yeah. ties and st- Surely that's a chorus. Yeah, I would, I would argue. It's, it it's other thing. I would argue it is. I mean, I think this is the beautiful thing about... Um, that I'm sort of starting to learn about Depeche Mode. And actually, I think particularly Martin Gore's songwriting in that, like, uh, it, 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 it's not, it's, they're a wonderful example of a band who sounds a lot simpler on the surface than they are. But when you dig into it a little bit deeper, you sort of discover, oh, no, well, there's way more to this than I might have initially realised. I mean, certainly, you know, um, as we've mentioned already, we did this for Trade-Off, you know, almost two years ago now, or however long ago it was. And um, I think when we were doing trade-off and stuff, I would listen to the records two, three times. But the you know pre- predominantly we we had to focus on doing the reviews and stuff because this is for a classic album, and we listen to we go and on these records far, far, far more than normal. I feel like I've got a much larger appreciation for this record because I've now listened to it closer to ten times or a dozen times. And um, it's really begun to open up and it's really I've really begun to discover that there is so much more to the songs than I initially realized. And I think that's what I've really enjoyed about going in on this record. And it does Mm. seem to be I don't want to point him out and say that he's the only one who does it in this band, but it does seem to be when Martin Gore takes over the reins that that really happens. I think I really like Martin Gore. I like him a lot. He comes across mm. really well on the film. Uh, he seems like a lovely chap. I'd love to go for a beer with him. He's uh, uh, he's um, unconventionally good looking as well, Martin. Yeah, Gore, by, yeah, the, yeah. by the way, he is, isn't he? I yeah. I'm like, if I was a girl, <laughs> I would want to go. I would fa- Martin Gore would be the one whose picture I'd have on my wall. Or if you were gay. Or if I was gay. Or if I was gay. Or if I was just me, probably, <laughs> and I still put posters up. Um, um, just to, just to quickly um, to say, we went on about how there's fucking loads of remixes of Strange Love. Um, Pimp was the B side for uh, for this, which is just such a fucking bonkers move. Um, B sides back in the day, like sometimes you get lucky, and sometimes you just be like, "What the fuck?" And I can imagine Pimp in isolation. I bought, yeah, um, I. I bought, uh, you know, the song Driving in My Car by Madness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The B-side to that is called Animal Farm and it is fucking weird. <laughs> it's so weird. And I remember being like, do I like this song? I think I have to because I like Madness. Madness is like my favourite <laughs> favorite band when I was five. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you used to get lucky with B-sides. Uh, you used to get kind of unlucky. And I'm not that I'm saying Pimp is unlucky. You'd be unlucky to get Pimp. But I do think you'd flip it over and you'd be like... What? I think in this context, I don't know how on earth it would work. It works brilliantly as the last track of the album. But yeah, I totally mm. understand what you're saying. I think as a B-side, you you you, prob- you probably would have bought the single, flipped it to the B-side, you know, a couple of times, maybe once, to be honest, and gone, okay, I'm not going to go back to that anytime soon. Um, because yeah, out of isolation, it just sounds like a weird, like yeah. Mike Oldfield kind of tubular bells you know like mm. it's just yeah just odd i love it i love it in context of the record but yeah odd but the pimp song uh there's shit loads of well 
there's at least three different variations of pimp across all the singles as well so they love um, fucking remixes yeah it seems so <laughs> seems yeah, they do yeah. yeah 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 um so that came out strange love was out and then never let me down was released as a second single just before the album's release on the 24th of august it came out it went in at number 22 in the united kingdom so slightly lower number two again in germany number 63 in the u.s again slightly lower um so it wasn't a massive hit but um andy fletcher has said it is a legendary song for depeche mode as we've already discussed uh martin gore said he knew it was special uh straight away especially when they played the song live um as again we have discussed and will discuss in a little bit so the album was released it peaked at number 10 in the united kingdom Number 35 on the US Billboard 200 went in at number two in Germany, number four in Sweden and Switzerland, and number seven in Finland and France. At this point, it's gone platinum in the United States of America, selling over a million copies. It has gone silver in the UK, selling 60,000 copies, while it's gone platinum in France, selling 400,000 copies, and gold in Germany selling 250,000 copies. It's also gone gold in Sweden and Switzerland. Um, the, which gives you some can, idea, doesn't it? Can we underline like, that 60,000 in the UK? That's a lot less than I expected. Yeah. Why? Well, I mean, because Depeche people, Mode People are cool. stupid. <laughs> I, I'm really stunned at that. I'm stunned at mm. that. Uh, and I'm guessing that Violator is going to be a lot more than that. I mean, obviously, we'll get onto that later. Yeah, but, but I mean, again, we will talk about the sales of Violator, and I'm I'm not no spoilers, yeah. but you will be quite surprised will by. I, I mean, it's gone gold in Sweden, right? And it sold fifty thousand copies in Sweden. Mm. So it's only sold ten thousand more copies here in the United Kingdom than it has in Sweden. Two hundred fifty thousand in Germany, four hundred thousand in France. Yeah. 60,000 in the UK. It is not, you know, this, I, I'll explain it all at the end. Because, you know, there may be people who are, who don't know about Depeche Mode who are just like, okay, he says that's a classic, it must be the classic. There will be people who do like Depeche Mode who are probably going, I mean, it's good and I like Depeche Mode, but the classic? Mm. And I'm telling you, yeah, for me, like, anyway, we'll get into that. Um, I, 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 I will back you up in terms of if Violator is the other one and Songs of Faith and Devotion, I'll, I'll back you up in terms of those those two, out of those three, yeah. I definitely think it's the better record. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Uh, reviews wise, um, it did pretty well. The Enemy said, I'm pleased to see that on Music for the Masses, Gore is its obsessive best. Every track is steeped in sin of one sort or another. In Britain, <laughs> Depeche Mode will always be seen as nine-year-olds from Basildon who make pretty tunes on lots of keyboards. The critical respect pretty. and mass adulation... The critical respect and mass adulation they command in Europe, the far eastern parts of America, escapes them here, but they shouldn't worry. So mm. a kind of damning with faint praise. Mm. Uh, Rolling Stone gave it four out of five. Can't find any quotes from that, unfortunately. It's quite hard to find um, reviews from back in the day. Uh, Slant Magazine gave it four out of five as well. Said with its themes of repentance and redemption, the album wasn't exactly for the masses, but it was a commercial and critical landmark for the band. That was uh, a bit of a kind of latter day retrospective uh review of it um the same magazine gave the album a 75th place placing on their list of the best albums of the 1980s uh in 1995 there was a retrospective review from q who gave the album eight out of ten 
um, saying that the album had its dark, gloomy secrets and layered soundtrack grooves to support some of the group's most self-conscious and self-questioning storylines. Most of the songs are real diamonds in the darkness. This was the point at which Depeche Mode were first taken seriously. And that Pitchfork review that I was talking about mm. for the reissue, uh, they said, for many, this was probably one of the first dance pop acts that they'd heard that didn't seem to be entirely about being cool and having a good time. Their music had been dark, clattery and full of S&M hints and blasphemy and on this record it reached a level of baroque pseudo classical grandness that lived up to those kids inflated visions of the group um but most importantly what did Robert Christigou our old mate <laughs> from the village voice and fart sniffing fame uh, <laughs> what did he say well Renfrey hmm. sit down I, I, I've he, been sat down this entire time, but I well, I'll sit it. even further down. <laughs> um, Robert Christigou liked it. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He yeah. actually liked it. He said, dark themes combined with light tunes until the very end of side two. Anybody with an interest in adolescent angst, adolescents included, can sob or giggle along as the case may be. B plus. Still sort of slagged him off at the end, yes. like a pretentious he's, cock. He's, he's, but he, he just actually, can't help himself, can he? He can't, he can't can fucking he? help himself. He, he actually sort of liked it though. And and I don't know what was going on that week with him, but he actually reviewed Motorhead that week and gave them an A. <gasps> an A for Which rock, and roll. rock and roll. Rock and roll. And he got B's for Tom Waits and Jesus in the Mary Chain and Jesus and Mary Chain in there as well. I mean, he must have had his fucking ears syringe that week. You <laughs> <laughs> could finally hear something properly. <laughs> Maybe he was just high. Who knows? Oh, well, he's occasionally capable of... Uh, One of, week of his whole life. Yeah. <laughs> having the, the correct opinion, uh, but still can't string a sentence together, it seems. <laughs> I, I cannot comprehend of a world where he gives motorhead an a no that's insane and yet everything else that is even vaguely rock based is like rubbish like look i love my i fucking love motorhead i, I, I love like them. motorhead yeah 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 i think there's I a love mu- them. yeah but i think there's much better rock acts out there you know than yeah look i love motorhead i'm just saying like, i love motorhead but i can't understand what, how he likes motorhead no no that's he's like oh there's you know if, if you're talking about oh it's just simple uneducated like music exactly. for like <laughs> goons motorhead are the ultimate like smash a beer can against your head fuck it it's just rock and roll let's drink yeah like that's motorhead yeah you're giving them an A. Yeah. <laughs> and you're pretending like you're some hoity-toity. Oh, no. I'm not going to... Oh, God, these these people who think they're intellectual listening to OK Computer and Automatic <laughs> for the Beep and Pink Floyd. <laughs> I, I, I know Motorhead aren't supposed to be that, but come on, mate. I mean, okay. Oh, okay. So I'm just uh, looking up uh, rock and roll as well. Just to, I don't want to go on too much on this, but um, I mean, it's not one of their massive, massive, massive records, is it? It's got Eat the Rich no. on it. Um, yeah. It's got uh, Blessing, which has spoken words by Michael Palin on it. Oh, it is a yeah. spoken word track by Michael Palin. <laughs> yeah. Don't remember it's that. It's all right. It's a pre- Look, most Motorhead records have something enjoyable on yeah, them. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but uh, would anyone consider rock and roll a classic? Uh, N- not really, no. There's at least seven better Motorhead records than There that. we go. Uh, odd, odd. I wonder, I bet he gave like Ace of Spades like a D or something. 
Yeah, just an emoji of like someone thumbs down emoji. <laughs> Couldn't be bothered. To, what a wanker. Anyway, yeah. even when he li- even when he likes something we like, we still, we still find him. fault. <laughs> we still fucking hate him. <laughs> oh dear. So anyway, um, that is a record. That was the reception to the record. Um, we should talk about the tour. The tour for the record, the music for the masses tour, uh, began on the 22nd of October 1987 in Madrid and went all the way to the 18th of June 1988 Crikey. at their famous Pasadena Rose Bowl show. The band did 55 shows in Europe, 42 shows in North America and four in Asia. That is Renfrey 101. 101 shows that's where it comes from i was going to ask that next part but okay yeah right okay uh they played two nights at wembley arena um but it was really the shows on the american leg that were the most important for the band really um the first night of the tour um in the in the u.s they played the cow palace in california which holds a very respectable sixteen thousand five hundred people mm-hmm. which for a band who are getting you know 50 and 60 in the charts in the u.s who are not getting big charts that is very i think that's very impressive that they're able to play that kind of venue little bit of perspective um o2 arena is eighteen thousand five hundred, so it's just two thousand less than than the o2 arena Hmm. which is you know when you're in that room with that many people barely perceptible yeah and you've got to think you know considering it was only got to number 35 on the album charts Mm -hmm. to go and do a tour to that many people yeah yeah um you know really on the back of word of mouth and a kind of cult following that yeah. they've been building up just through touring a lot um is is pretty impressive yeah um but as i said they closed at the pasadena rose bowl Sixteen thousand five hundred people is pretty respectable but that is some jump to the ninety-two thousand five hundred and forty-two people that you need to fill the pasadena rose bowl in the space of four months that is a hell of a jump yes wow that is an insane jump um that is that's larger than download isn't it these days these days that's larger than in fact i think even even at downloads peak that's larger than than download i think i think downloads got a hundred thousand people to see ac probably acdc got a hundred thousand yeah um i mean i know the iron maiden show at the monsters of rock which is probably not even in the same place but uh even though it's done it and it's different yeah, part different of the track part, or whatever yeah, yeah. um but they had 100 i think it's 115 120,000 people okay. on that day in 88 okay. i want to say has been the record but so but regardless on a normal download yes you're absolutely right mm. they won't get that many people mm. um i'm not sure reading and I, leeds would get that many people the, these I days don't, I, no i've never been to a reading and leeds that got that many people no no guaranteed um it's quite the mind doesn't compute. My mind cannot compute it. Mm. Mm. It just doesn't add up. I mean, there's a quote from Dave Garney says, we'd created a following long before we were selling records. We were doing the same thing as the Grateful Dead. We could go out and play to 10 to 15,000 people a night on tour. And then come the end of the year, we'd still only sold about 150,000 records. It didn't add up. Um, K-Rock, the... The, the kind of the college radio, radio rock station. the, the yeah. station K-Rock. had been playing the K Rock. Everyone talks about K Rock. K Rock had been playing the band's songs endlessly. Apparently, they were requested a, more than any other band. And even wow. though it was translate, 
translating into sales immediately the it kind of wasn't translating into album sales the kind of the clamor for the band and the passion of the people who were going to see the band was kind of rocketing um it's a weird thing there's a, a, an interview with a press person from the time who says um they weren't playing music for the masses but they were playing music for an extreme and dedicated group of young people and Andy McCluskey from OMD, who actually supported the band at the Pasadena Rose Bowl at that gig, um, which is kind of ironic considering OMD were one of the bands who inspired Depeche Mode yeah. to pick up, to put down the guitars and pick up the synth in the yeah. first place. Yeah. Um, he said that Depeche Mode adopted the U2 approach of just go out there and play and play and play and get on college radio and be seen. They started this live steamroller, which by the end of the 80s had seen them become a stadium band. So that, I guess, is where we get to, and what we should talk about, is 101. Um, 101, the album and film was released on 13th of March, 1989. My ninth birthday Renfrey <laughs> is when it came out <laughs> nice little funny. birthday present yeah for me yeah um, Mode and Code Orange always considering you yeah. when they released their records yeah, good of them <laughs> even though I hadn't even heard of Depeche Mode probably when I was nine um uh so the gig at the Passing the Rose Bowl which kind of is the the ultimate goal of 101 I mean the album I think it's one of the great live albums ever personally um it's been called the Woodstock of electronic music. Um, the documentary was directed by Don Allen Pennybaker, who had previously made concert films for Bob Dylan and David Bowie. And he said of the project, I found the audience very rapt. They were there for that band. Not any band would do. I got the feeling that maybe there was no other band that they'd ever go out for again in that assemblage. And it made me take that audience fairly seriously. Now, the initial idea for this was to make a full-on documentary about Depeche Mode um, with no live footage, with no other band stuff. It was just going to be a documentary about them and their sort of story. But they felt that their live shows had become such an integral part of their success that they wanted to include the live show in it. And they also wanted to somehow manage to capture what they could see was an incredibly passionate fan base that they had cultivated yeah. over this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the fact that 101 starts with Depeche Mode in the US kind of wondering if they can fill this tour mm. and then ending with them selling out, selling, I think they sold 86,000 tickets mm. at the Pasadena Rose Bowl is crazy and perfect. Well, the opening scene is, I can't remember who it is now, but someone someone on the phone, one of those massive brick 80s phones, um, yeah. asking if they can put the stage forward at one, yeah. of, one of the venues. Again, I can't remember the name of the venue. People tend to put the, the curtain back. Opeth, Wembley Arena. Uh, and loads of bands who play Wembley Arena, to be fair. Um, but, you know, I mean, that is a tactic that <laughs> was being used even back then to sort of mm. play these places um and make it feel like that they were more sold out than they actually were um mm. but uh but yeah i mean whether they actually had to do that or not i don't know they do talk about in the documentary some of the um some of the shows weren't yeah. didn't sell very well but, well uh, um th the main one being uh when they go to nashville that's the one and buy a load of johnny cash and roy orbison tapes and talk about bluegrass with a woman with that woman like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah yeah which is really good yeah. um but the, the concept for the movie basically the plot line of the movie was the story of the band Breaking America 
but with this obsessive rabid fan base alongside them and i mean it's kind of hokey looking at 101 now um i lo- i kind of love it because it it basically kind of it taps into something which kind of doesn't really exist i mean you know obsessive fan bases stands whatever you want to call them um they obviously do still exist mm-hmm. they're for the main part they're not as kind of goofy as the kids that you see on this they're much more toxic and serious and horrible goofy is um, a very kind word to put it to, <laughs> to say about these yeah. kids though <laughs> but i love 101 because it kind of taps into this sort of nascent alternative culture and it makes this sort of fly on the wall documentary stroke concert film that captures that new movement from alternative music in whatever kind of form it was sort of breaking big or one band particularly breaking big and actually going on to become a really sizable artist. And it's very innovative for the time. Hmm. It's kind of capturing lightning in the bottle. I mean, you look at it Hmm. and a real, really, I mean, the electronic Woodstock tag is, I think is brilliant because I mean, really, I guess it's the first time and maybe until like the prodigy came along. I mean, you could, I guess you could count people like Steve Aoki and the chemical all, all the way through to the Chemical Brothers as yes, these days you can be a DJ and you can play stadiums, whatever. Right. But um, the only time that an electronic band plays stadium rock at its own game and wins, you know, and I think it's fucking cool that you see this vision of the future from 10 years ago when these people in Berlin, these like craft work or these little basement clubs uh, fiddling with synthesizers and playing with computers and making this odd, weird music that everyone just thought, what are you doing? It's not even real music. Like, what is that to becoming one of the biggest sounds and one of the biggest bands in the world? Depeche Mode being the band who conquered it. I think it's a fucking, it's a pretty incredible achievement and it's a pretty amazing thing to see whilst it also capturing like culture and musical culture and youth culture and all those things at the same time um i just to add to that i think it's um yeah absolutely that capturing a moment in time thing is fascinating i think it's a really fascinating document of a time in the of an excessive time in the music industry that we're not going to see again certainly anytime soon probably ever realistically um but it's it's all the more fascinating for that it's a fascinating time capsule um seeing some of the excesses of it and not in a shitty way either like you know certainly so i think the band certainly come across um very well um their fans less so but i think the band come across really 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 well um for the most (laughs) part um yeah yeah we'll go into that in a second um i I i think do you know what it reminded me of? Um, they reminded me of uh, how Iron Maiden come across in their documentaries. Just generally very down-to-earth sort of, you know, London chaps, basically. I mean, you know, some people might bulk it down-to-earth when I say Iron Maiden because of Bruce Dickinson, and he has his moments. But even even considering the size of Maiden, I think I think considering the size of Maiden and the, the band that he fronts, I think in comparison to say a Gene Simmons character or something like that, I th- I actually think Bruce Dickinson is relatively down to earth in comparison, you know, so just to add that as an amendment. Uh, but I, th- I thought Depeche Mode, yeah, just came across as really quite shy, geeky 
music nerds and i actually really liked that about them i think they're they're you know i really really liked it and i think on paper certainly it's a really interesting idea for a documentary um having um having the crew follow the band around america but also there's this kind of tour bus which uh is is hired out for the fans full of twats full of twats <laughs> yeah a bus of twats bus bus full of twats but um it kind of it, it's it is it's interesting how the documentary follows them half and half doesn't it you know mm. it's 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 half about following the band around and half about following their fans around and the grateful dead is a really interesting comparison because the, the dead had those fans who were just absolutely rabid and um definitely have one of those fan bases where people are almost put off by the fan base because of their devotion being so massive and so just so passionate um another one i mean just to you know be a little bit of me is pearl jam i mean pearl jam have this massively devoted yeah. fan base who follow them around on tour i know that because i'm one of them um the <laughs> last really are as the, well. yeah the last four the last four or five times pearl jam have come to europe um rather than just seeing them once in london I've fucked off around Europe for two weeks and just followed them on tour, you know, and it's only, there's only certain bands who can inspire that kind of devotion um, in, in thousands and thousands of people. There's a whole community set up around it with Pearl Jam, certainly. And I'm guessing there was with Depeche Mode as well. And there certainly well, was with the, the Grateful Dead. Certainly was. With yeah. Well, well, Garn says that the record company told them when they tr said they were going to book the Rose Bowl, which hadn't been used, by the way, as a music venue since the 70s. I thought it was 82 or 83. They, they named an example in the film. It was either 82 or 83, but it was, oh, for, really? it was for a long time. They hadn't used okay, it as a venue fine. for a long time. Yeah. I thought it had been, they said, oh, no one's been here since the 70s at some point. Maybe I'm just imagining that. I'm sure. Right, I've right at the that. end. It was, it was like 1982, but yeah, it right, was for okay. seven, five, six years, something like that. Yeah. But Garner said that the record company thought they were, he has said mad, and they thought they'd never pull it off. Um, he says, but we believe we had the fans that would travel from Texas or New York if they found out that we were doing this show. And so it came to pass. Mm. I mean, you know, those kids, as much as, <laughs> you know, they come across as sort of, I mean, you know, they're, they're 17. Uh, <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. they're bellends. But my God, like it, when I was 17, if someone said you can go follow corn around on tour. Mm, mm, mm on a bus with a bunch of corn fans yeah yeah then i'd you know and and i bumped into a load of you know like the bit where they bump into the guns and posers fan, mm. the heavy metal fans who those i mean and to be fair to those like you think the depeche mode fans are wankers those metal fans are oh, absolute wankers cocks. Yeah, yeah yeah fucking yeah, yeah. cocks yeah, yeah, yeah. so um you know like they don't come across great no. but then how many teenagers come across great when they're out on the road trying to sort of impress people that's probably a, none of us would I that's a perfectly fair point i'm sure at that age i would have come across as yeah i mean i was smack bang into fucking drama school phase at that point so i was i thought you were saying i was into smack <laughs> <I> was <laughs> well, smack too. bang into smack <laughs> i mean i well i was certainly at my prime wanker phase uh in 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 my life um my god yeah so so no that's fair enough uh i mean there there is a conversation that they have in the hotel room about art at one point which is i mean if people think i'm pretentious fucking hell um yeah, uh, uh, that bit is just like Christ. so eye-rollingly terrible yeah, yeah. and but, the couple the couple uh, 
it was kind of it's quite sweet together like the guy with a mental flock of seagulls yeah, haircut and he's yeah, yeah. like making his girlfriend dye her hair blue yeah. and it's a, it's the kid who looks like glenn from from big brother i don't know if anyone remembers glenn from big brother <laughs> probably not Sorry, <laughs> or, or matthew lillard who played okay. um yeah yeah who i know who you mean Shaggy now yeah in, uh, he is a real cunt? knobhead. That kid. <laughs> <laughs> he's a real. He is, I don't yeah. want to say cunt because he's just a sort of gangly knobhead, isn't he? Basically, he annoyed the shit out of me. But oh, I, he annoyed the shit out of me. Yeah, but he's not a horrible person. He's not a horrible person, though. I will say this: um, even <laughs> I did get. I, I, at no point did I not enjoy watching the documentary, even when it was focusing on the fans rather than the band. Mm. Um, because I did, because there was a sense of me going, oh, what are these fucking buffoons going to do next? What are these fucking idiots going to do next? I wouldn't have wanted to spend much more time with them, to be totally honest. No. I definitely wouldn't have wanted to be locked in that tour bus with them. Fuck me. Talk about hell on earth. But within the context of the, I, I mean, I thought, I thought it was a really, it was a brave idea on paper, the 101 documentary, and it's mm-hmm. something that you know might could have it could have been fucking terrible, really. It could yeah. have been awful, and they I think they pulled it off really well. I found it a really interesting document of a time which is long, 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 long gone. But mm. certainly, if you're interested in um, music history, pop music history in any way, shape, or form, I think one on one is just a fascinating document as a as a whole. It is. Anyway. And- there's bits in it as well where you see i mean the kind of it probably didn't help a lot of depeche mode's image with the sort of people that might want to go and see them because there's bits like is it during is it shake the disease where there's a girl and it's just a camera from below this fan and she is whole grabbing her hair and pulling it and screaming the lyrics along to i think it's shake the disease but don't quote me on that i've been mm. a, i did watch it a couple of weeks ago when i knew we were going to do this but i haven't watched it i've seen it a lot of times but i you know I've, i can't remember what it what it was off the top of my head um but anyway she is crying she's doing that kind of yeah. proper and yeah. there's a lot of like screamy screaminess going on and there's one you know, there's one moment i i and again my jaw was on the floor when i saw this i can't remember the song i can't even remember the name of the band but a member of the band um goes up to i think a woman in the crowd so just i think just shakes it's her andy hand fletcher. is yeah, it andy, fletcher, andy fletcher right just yeah. just sort of, of all the ones as well yeah, like one <laughs> with the glasses yeah. like, really I, I, either shakes her hand or gives her a high five or something like that you know just as sort of hey thanks for coming to the show kind of thing and she just collapses she just faints mm. and it was like mm. what the fuck uh yeah mm. and yeah as you say she, like no offense to andy fletcher but like the least cool member of the group probably or the least the least yeah. sort of sought after in that sense you know probably the last one to go the, the one who stands at the back of all the photos you know uh, mm. and she and she just she just she just goes it's it's amazing mm. it's like wow people really liked this band didn't they oh god Crazy. yeah i mean um the, the the actual um the actual gig itself i mean dave garner said he lost his voice right at the start of the show. Mm. And I think you can kind of, he's, he's definitely struggling, struggling. towards the end. Yeah. 101 shows yeah, probably would be. Yeah, There is an interesting um, point where I'm assuming the sound guy says, yeah, we turned the reverb right up just to help him out. Mm. And right at the end, he thanks the crowd. And it, it just sounds like someone going, because there's so much yeah, reverb yeah. on it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, 
uh, Alan Wilder said we were using completely different equipment that night for the rest of the tour. So you got a different PA, right. different sound desk, completely right. different rig, and none of them knew what they were doing. So it all went wrong. It basically worked, but we couldn't hear ourselves. Mm. And Dave was deafening because Dave lost his voice. They had to crank him up and turn everyone else down. So I think the band themselves are like, oh God, it was really difficult. And then obviously it started raining um, during the, I think God's got a sixth sense of humor line on Blasphemous Rooms. It started mm. pissing it down mm. in California in June. Yeah. Like, yeah, come yeah, on, yeah, man. Yeah. But yeah. overall, I mean, I, I messaged you just before uh, and I was going, um, and I said, Dave Garner's got, does some fucking heavy lifting to front that band. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, talking about the roles that people play, You've got three blokes stood behind keyboards yeah. on a smoky, dark stage with, you know, dimmed blue lights for the most part in a bowl in front of 86,000 people. Mm. You've got one man mm. stood in front of them. And the fact that Depeche Mode come across like a fucking incredible live band on on that is, I think, just testament to how... Dave Garn is one of the greatest frontmen of any genre of music ever. I don't disagree with you, but I'm going to slightly... Uh, I, I half agree with you, is what I'm going to say here. I think they come across as a very good live band. Um, I, I, I actually have to say, I thought some of the footage little, did look a little bit stilted. Um, and there were many, 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 many times where I did think, I really wish they had a drummer. I wish they had a drummer. Um, and I know that's a thing. And the, lots of people have said that. And, you know, it's, it's hardly a hot take. But there were times watching the live footage that I thought that quite a bit, if I'm honest. I do agree that Dave Gahan does a very good job. I don't think he's a traditional frontman in any way, shape or form. So that's quite an interesting dynamic. Um, because he is actually very kind of self-contained in a lot of ways. There are times when he's like lifting his arms and going kind of um uh like really egging the crowd on to do stuff and things like that but there's a lot of moments where he is just very within himself and um it's far more of a kind of i mean i was looking at it and i was like yeah i can see how maynard james keenan or trent Reznor might have like nicked a few not even moves but just nicked a few ideas from his uh, his style of frontmanship i don't mm. think it's traditional that's not me saying it's not good I'm just saying it's not traditional, I don't think. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know this to be a fact, but I can say it with total certainty. Renfrey has never watched the songs of Faith and Devotion live footage, have you? No, no, no. No, okay. So what I think that a lot of what you've just said is true of what for that time. Okay. okay. For that for that time. Okay. okay. Dave Garn today, or in the sort of three or four years post that and beyond is one of the most flamboyant uh front people ever fair enough um i'm going off one alone he is yeah yeah he has definitely grown into that because i think you're right there are stuff like you know little 15 obviously Mm -hmm. he does Mm -hmm. that clutching the mic Mm -hmm. um there are points in but but i think it's when when you see um stuff like the famous arm wave yeah, in yeah, yeah. Never yeah, let me down, down again. again. Which yeah, yeah. the whole, which you know, and and also, I, I mean, the other thing is, yeah, he is like when you when you see someone like Dave Garn, 
<laughs> at the going, oh God, what should I say? Pasadena or yeah. Rose Bowl or like not knowing what to say <laughs> before he goes out to well, play yeah. in front of me. Yeah. And there's a bit where he goes, because they were supported by Thomas Dolby, OMD and Wire. And they start the tape and he goes, oh, maybe this is a bad idea. Maybe we shouldn't do it. They've seen Wire, Thomas Dolby and OMD. They've had a good night. Oh, maybe that's yeah, enough for them. Yeah. And it's like, mate, they're all here to see you. They don't, yeah. they're, they're all here to see you. Well, this is what and I you're going to carry that. This is what I mean by the down to earth stuff. Like it is, it is really, I really, I really liked them. I, as I said, I thought they, they came across really, really well and really, yeah. really down to earth you know, in, for the most part. There's one or two moments where I was like, eh, but you know, for the most part, I thought they came across brilliantly. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are so many Spinal Tap moments in this film. I counted mm. about 837 moments in this film wow. that could have been lifted directly and just put into this is Spinal Tap and no one would have noticed, I think. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I mean, the, I, I do, I do think that generally they were really they're very very down to earth and they yeah. um you know they seem like Just top blokes any any time a journalist <laughs> comes in interview i'm like oh god <laughs> like the bit of martin gore goes yeah we sort of hate radio djs oh god yeah you should actually one more thing with the um one more thing with the show itself though um i think uh the show as in the lights really carried it very well there was a really really cool bit where it showed um and i don't know if Tepeche, I, I, I imagine Tepeche mode probably weren't the first to do this it was probably someone like jean michael jarre or someone like that but they did have a midi interface with the lights where um the lighting woman which was nice to see as well because yeah, uh, back that, then yeah. wouldn't wouldn't have been very common i'm assuming it's not very common now either but um the lighting lady woman was um uh playing the lights so yeah, basically great. you um and i know all about this because i went on tour with frontiera last year and they do exactly the same um i will say frontiera's rig is a, a hell of a lot more complex and complicated than um depeche modes but you know we are talking fucking 30 40 years in the 30 years later um but yes it is literally you just get a midi type keyboard and you sort sort of plug your lights into it and you end up keys end up corresponding with particular lights and you and she's literally playing along to the rhythm of the song and those lights are are um are flashing in in rhythm with the song oh god i'm explaining i'm, I'm doing all right with that rhythm of the night <laughs> rhythm yeah. of the night <laughs> yeah. you, know you know I what i mean you know i do know what you mean, mean. Um, um and it's cool it's really cool to see that and and i don't know you know i'm i, I don't think Tepeshmo pioneered that but they must have been one i would have thought they would have been one of the first bands to yeah. pioneer that kind of technology or yeah it's cool it's it's a it's a really cool look at sort of behind the scenes and stuff and also how much fucking money they would have made from that show yeah yeah oh my god the, like, when they're selling when they're, they're got the money for the merch t-shirts he's like oh it's 85 grand and you're like fucking out of one <laughs> box of t-shirts yeah yeah jesus yeah. um uh, due to the prominence of the bus kids in the film, it is widely considered that 101 is the impetus for the kind of reality craze that swept MTV in the following years, including like the real world. So there's an argument that Depeche Mode invented reality TV. Hate them even more. Uh, not Depeche Mode, those kids. Uh, oh, mm. okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, could, I, I mean, that I didn't thought... that didn't occur to me. But yeah, that's an interesting. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. So I, I mean, I, the the actual live album itself, I think, is 
fucking brilliant. Mm. The documentary is really, really interesting and mm. definitely worth your time. Mm. Uh, it had it have just been the show at the Pasadena Rose Bowl, I think mm. it probably would have been a less interesting thing. But you should probably do both i um, thought it was really interesting i mean bearing in mind that i you know at this point i can't honestly say i'm a depeche mode fan i think it's a little bit early for me to say that but bearing in mind that i wasn't a fan of the band it's two hours long you know it's not short um I, it flew by i thought it was really, really uh, and it contained a lot of footage of a bunch of kids that i found extraordinarily irritating i thought i thought it flew by uh, 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 really quickly and i thought it was a as i say just a really really interesting document of that time so i would recommend yeah. it to anyone even if you're not a master depeche mode fan i thought it was really interesting mm. yes me too um as I said, it was uh, the album was reissued in two thousand and six, uh, as all of the bands were, uh, all of the bands' albums were. Um, this added uh, the Route sixty six cover, few remixes, the song Agent Orange. Did you listen to any of these? I I didn't. No, sorry. It's all right. Okay. I mean, it's un unnecessary. I would say okay. uh, some of the reissues are got some quite good stuff on it, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about in the second half. Um, this one it's a couple of extra songs it's not really necessary but you know i thought i'd mention them um covers renfrey there's a covers album which i own called for the masses Mm -hmm. which is a really good depeche mode covers album Mm -hmm. um there's plenty of stuff from all of their different records on there but um i just wanted to say if you can find that it's really good but we should talk about some of the various bands since we've been talking about their influence uh we should talk about the various bands who have covered songs from this record um Never Let Me Down Again, covered by Godhead and the Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> Which one of those two is your favourite, Remfrey? Uh, I didn't listen to the Godhead one because, you know, because. Um, I did listen to the Never Let Me Down one. I mean, we had a, a, a minor uh, row <laughs> about this beforehand because I think it's great. Um, yeah. And I think they do a really interesting thing with it. Not what you would expect from the pumpkins, but I think they do a really interesting thing with the song. Uh, yeah. but you think less. I I just, I love the idea of the Smashing Pumpkins flanging out and taking that song and doing it with like proper kind of alt rockness. Yeah. So when I first heard it, I, I like, I get it. They've done a John Lewis Christmas advert with it. And it's not bad. It's really harsh. not. But it I, is I really, yeah, saying, yeah, it's 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 harsh. harsh. It is, you know, it is harsh. You're right, it's yeah. harsh. They've slowed it down. They've done it a kind of a, a nice acoustic version of it, and it's all. I mean, I said to you at the start, I, like, I hate it. I don't hate it. I just, I don't, I, I don't feel. I feel like I feel disappointed in the fact that I think Smashing Pumpkins could have turned this rager into a real rager and they've gone in the complete opposite direction to what i would have liked from them and i feel disappointed in that that's probably my own problem well it is Mm, my own problem mm, it's mm. not bad it's just i would say this we did a cover special recently and we talked about what makes a good cover and what doesn't blah 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 they've managed to keep the essence of the song but change it and make it sound like a i mean it's difficult to say like a smashing pumpkin song because smashing pumpkins have six or seven different variants of what a smashing pumpkin song is but they make it sound like a sort of acoustic smashing pumpkin song but they also kind of um it's very recognizably the depeche mode original but they also change kind of what the song means a little bit as well and i think that i think that's the sign of a great cover personally i really like it i mean i think it, i i really like it but then i like pumpkins a lot more than you do as well though don't i yeah it's all right i mean it's all right uh the godhead cover 
is yeah. shite. Yeah, You'll not be surprised. unsurprised <laughs> to learn. Um, <laughs> behind the Wheel, covered by the, the uh, Dillinger Escape Plan and Chino Moreno live. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Uh, live and chaotic, ending with the riff for 43% burn. I think they did that at the Golden Gods for Revolver yeah, in America yeah, yeah. Uh, a few years ago. Yeah. Um, thoughts on that? <laughs> oh, wow. I, I, I didn't know this existed uh, before you pointed this out. I thought it was fucking amazing. I mean, this is the mm. same Golden Gods performance where... Um, I don't know what happened, but I think just Greg... Oh, I think Greg, like, slipped over and, like, hit his head open on the cymbal or something like that, and he's just covered in blood for the whole thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, the whole the whole performance is worth seeing, the whole Dillinger performance, certainly. Yeah. But, yeah, this Behind the Wheel um, cover with Chino coming out as well. It's fucking awesome. Love it. And he they both just scream the shit out of it yeah. at points as well. Yeah. yeah. It's fucking uh, great. Very good. Um, a fairly straight, surprisingly, cover of Little 15 by Between the Buried and Me. Did you listen to that? Is that on the anatomy of? No. Um, then no, I've not heard it. It doesn't surprise me that it's a straight cover because the thing that disappoints me about when Between the Buried and Me covers songs is they do them really straight and I don't understand yeah, why. Yeah, they do, don't they? Actually, they um, do. I say it's fairly surprising. It's actually not if you've no, heard the anatomy no. of. Uh, that's why I don't think the anatomy of is a very good covers album. Uh, even though they choose to cover some great songs and technically they do them really well. I don't think it's very good. Anyway, that's a tangent. Um, Little 15, no, I didn't hear it. Straight cover? Meh. It's a it's a fairly straight cover, yeah. I would okay. say it's just it is what it is. Actually, is it on? I haven't listened to uh, the anatomy of for ages. Maybe it is on that. Um, it is. It is. Yeah, sorry, it? Okay. My, it is. Yeah. In that case, I, I, I have heard it, but it went. But I probably twelve, thirteen years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, Strange love by Bat for Lashes. Pretty identical, but with a worse singer, but with a really good bass line. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, like they did some good with the, whoever the bassist is, mm-hmm. they have done a good job. But I'd say my favourite of all the covers of music for the masses songs is Deftones doing "To Have and Hold." Yeah, which is riffy and great and heavy and and still dark, and I really really like it a lot. Just another example as to why Deftones are fucking great. I love the fact that Pretty. they take probably, I mean, bar. Um, blah, bar pimp they take probably the weirdest certainly one of the weirdest songs on the record and then yeah. make it a banger sort of yeah sort yeah. of but they 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 just riff it up so much uh it's fantastic love it yeah Absolutely it's really good love it yeah so you know they're all pretty much a mixed bag i would say um so in summation of the record, Renfrey, before we move on, um, this is the best Depeche Mode record. Sorry, folks, it is. It's it's like a stranglehold, a kind of velvet-gloved chokehold, I think, this record. The balance of what they were and the balance of what they were about to become, I think, achieves a perfect moment of genuine uniqueness even in a career of unique and surprising things um and it does get kind of overlooked somewhat in their back catalogue i think maybe it's because back then it wasn't as much it considered the change in directing as black celebration was Mm -hmm. and maybe it's not considered as much now because it wasn't as big a commercial smash that we're about to talk about with violator Mm. but in terms of a moment in time and taking a certain thing 
a scene, an idea, even if you like, and progressing it to a place where it had never really existed before and doing something with that idea that had never really been achieved before. I think it's incredible, this record. I think it's an amazing achievement. It's a pop record made from nothing but computers with this steely kind of mechanical shine on it with a soft, fleshy, beating heart and just some of the best, most surprising, oddest, yet catchy songs that this band have ever made. I think it's every single thing that anyone who is even vaguely interested in Depeche Mode likes all wrapped up in one album. Whether you like Just Can't Get Enough or whether you like Barrel of a Gun, I think it's got all of those things in it. It's, I mean, we're going into Violator, which, you know, I've I've not picked Violator just to go, oh, we'd better do another one. But Mm -hmm. this is the best one Mm -hmm. for me. Mm Mm-hmm. This is definitely the best one. And it is a bit weird that it's sort of not considered the best one. Mm. Um, I mean, I sort of already said it earlier uh, on this on this podcast, but I was just really surprised when you told me that this is not considered one of the classics. You said to me that it would, you know, within their back catalogue, it would be considered maybe the fourth or fifth fourth? best. Right. Yeah. Maybe by most people, of course. I um, think in the general, it would it would probably be. I mean, it, there it's there's a run of four with Depeche Mode in the eyes of the world, people. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that starts with Black Celebration, and kind of ends with Songs of Faith and Devotion. Yeah, but then uh, it's slightly more complicated than that. But then I would say Music for the Masses is the one that gets spoken about the least. Mm. even though kind of the most stuff happened and you look at 101 and how kind of integral that was and 101's almost just been sort of relegated to you know a stepping stone to violator in 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 a lot of ways and i think that's deeply deeply unfair mm. Mm. it's certainly i mean like i say of the three depeche mode records that i've listened to in the past three two three weeks it is for me by far my favorite i would also say i'm not going to sit here and do my whole thing of going objectively it's the best one blah 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 which i do like to do from time to time but i will say is i do think it's objectively the most interesting record out of those three and i do Mm. think that like quite strongly i think it's the most interesting of the three by quite some way obviously it's my favorite of the three i've already said that but um you know, I do accept that Violator is a, a, a very, very good album as well. We'll get onto that in a moment. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I can't quite get there with Songs of Faith and Devotion as of yet. Uh, although it's the one that I've listened to the least as well, I will say mm-hmm. as well. Um, but yeah. I, well, Black, Black Celebration is definitely really good. I mean, I, I'm going to ch- definitely chuck Ultra in there as well. And okay. there's plenty to admire on those first sort of four records of theirs as well. Okay. But in in terms of, you know, uh, in terms of just consistency uh, this is the most consistent record i'll say this i will say this as the as the newbie and as the guy who's come to this with absolutely no prior knowledge whatsoever yada 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 there is a str- well i was gonna say i was gonna say there's a strong chance that i will pick up music for the masses at some point on cd or vinyl i mean i actually had a quick look 
Um, and it actually appears to be ridiculously difficult to get hold of at the moment. Uh, on vinyl? Uh, or CD, or both. Or I, I was looking on CD primarily because I wanted all the bonus bits and pieces as well. Mm. But um, for some reason, it appears to be ridiculously difficult to get hold of. I don't really know why that is. But anyway, I I would like to own music for the masses. I'm not particularly bothered about owning Violator or um, Songs of Faith and Devotion. So there Ooh. we go. Wow. Little tease. There we go. Little tease. That's a little it? tease for the next one. Yeah. Um, but there you go. Anyway, we will move on to Violator in part two, just as a little bit for the aftermath. Dave Garner said that after the show at the Rose Bowl, he felt deflated. He said, there has never been another concert like it for us. I just remember thinking, where else can we go from here? We've created our own utopia and lived in it. This caravan that we've been dragging around for us for, around with us for the last 10 years, there was nowhere else to go with it. What are we going to do? It's almost like we've reached our destination. It changed after that. It had to. We had to take another direction. And there is a little scene towards the end of 101 where you see Dave Garn talking to one of the stagehands and saying, I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And he yes. looks he looks sad. He's sitting on his he own does. and he looks he looks sad. Mm. Um, it's weird, isn't it? And, mm. and when you know kind of where we're about to go, um, you may be going, ah, well, we, well, I know. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it. If you're not a Depeche Mode fan, I hope this has inspired you to um, go and listen to this quite excellent record. You can listen to all their records. But before you do that, head on over to patreon.com forward slash riot act where you will be able to find part two where we go, we go big. This is where shit gets big, big on Violator. Um, that's coming up right now. See you later, guys.